and everybody's hanging out, and all of a sudden you hear like. <laughs> That's the sound clip for the opener of the show. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. And I'm Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. This is the Herpeticulture Podcast, which is part of the Herpeticulture Network. Enjoy the show. This is episode 111 of the Herpeticulture yeah. Podcast. I'm Justin Smith of Palmetto Coast Exotics. I am Phil Wolf of the Nefris Initiative. Who's this show brought to you by, Phil? show is brought to you by, oh my God, there's so many sponsors, MB Cajun Exotics, the finest of handcrafted, artesian sculptured racks and cages through PVC materials and heartfelt care and loving tender They're care. made out of marble. I don't know about that. They'd be very heavy. Uh, as well as Steve's Sanctuary and his Venom Hot Sauces. Buy his hot sauces. They will tickle your taste buds with fancy... He has a wide assortment of delectable flavors, and all the proceeds go to sponsoring him, educating the local masses on snake and reptile awareness. So that with real kids, hot sauce. It's real hot sauce. So the kids don't grow up to use shovels to cut off portaventil animals' heads. That's a fact. Yep, we're saving a lot of decay snakes from being mistaken for copperheads. Yes. Remember, children, they don't have a stinger on their tail, and they don't stab you with it. But uh, we are joined by Miss Erica Paris and Mike Pannone uh, to talk about some Chihuahua geckos. Chihuahua. I know we wanted to talk about the pronunciation, so now I'm like Chewies, Chihuahua geckos, and their genus like Minaria gecko. Yeah. Something, something. Yeah. Every time yeah. someone says Chihuahua, all I think of is Bill Burr. Chihuahua. <laughs> So I don't watch stand up. You should. I just man, I okay. First just listen, off, to, let me, listen to his let me, podcast. Let me get this gripe out of the way real quick. Netflix. Stop yeah. putting stand up seg like comedy specials in with the comedy movies. They are not the same. For the love of God, create a separate subsection for stand up comedy. I am so tired of trying to find a movie and having to wade through everyone and their mom's comedy special that is on Netflix. Like why can't why why can't they just be separate? It drives me nuts. I don't even bother looking anymore because I'm having to wade through all these comedy specials that of people that I a haven't even heard of, and b that just made it my camera worse. But I don't know. Either way, I just I wish they'd fix that. So, but okay. uh, what is going on? Well, thanks for having us. Thanks. Yeah. Thanks very much for having me. I'm excited to be here. Me too. I've been waiting a long time for a Chawa episode. See, even there, Chawa. <laughs> I learned Chawa. Um, I have been corrected. It's Chihua, but I've had like 20 years of saying it in my head as Chawa. So that's a really hard thing to change once you're set in your ways. It's. Uh, I've always known it as Chihua, but I mean, that's never been... I never know if that's accurate or not. So, yeah, yeah Erica and I, Erica and I were chatting about this uh, a little bit earlier today, and um, I've always heard it as Chihua. Uh, I've heard it pronounced the way Erica does as well. And then I think um, 
for the first time, like last year, or maybe it was the year before that, um, Andrew Gilf- Gilpin gave a speech uh, at a symposium and mentioned that potentially the CH was a hard, so it was Kahua instead of Chohua. So uh, I have to say that I hope it's Chohua because the reason I chose my business name, the Chohua Chamber, was alliteration. So if it's not, yeah. I'm kind of screwed. <laughs> <laughs> That's good though. The truth is that all these names are Latin and Latin is a dead language and it's been dead for so long that nobody can prove anybody wrong. Perfect. Everybody's right. I don't know. So, we have Scott Iper and, and some of those guys in Australia yeah. are constantly like, it's not bread lie, it's bread lee. Like, Colonians well, you know, instead of Chelonians. It's like, dude. You have, you have certain rules in classical Latin. I say classical Latin because we don't know what the hell we're talking about. You know what I mean? It's a couple hundred years later. But if you go off of classical Latin, well, let me rephrase. Let me rewind. I say Chihua just because that's what everyone knows it as. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but in preparation for this show, I um, I did a little homework. So, and I'm going to throw it at you guys and get your Uh-oh. guys' opinion and observation of this because I am not a Iraqi guy at all. Okay. Um, but for those of you who know me, uh, I'm a taxonomy freak. I love it. Mm-hmm. So I started digging uh, through scientific papers in both French and German. Mm-hmm. I don't speak either one, so it's, it gets rough. Um, trying to find the original description of what I believe it was platydactylus mm-hmm. Chihua, mm-hmm. right? Uh, which was uh, 18, was 1876 and Bouvet, who was yeah. French. Yeah. So I found the only thing that I could find, no, nothing talks about Chihua. They talk about the genus name over and over again and dissecting it and the different translations. And I found, I found one thing, um, which I thought was really interesting. It was Zola Gilishka Jahebericht which basically was like a zoological paper from 1880, basically saying that every single time these guys thought they had a Chihua gecko, it was the wrong gecko, <laughs> which I wow. thought was which I thought was super hilarious. I um, haven't seen or heard that one, but that's wild. Yeah, and then basically talk about how I guess Bovet and Bollinger used to argue over which one was which, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and again, this is all in French and German, so I'm trying to like make make them the best of it. But then I also I have everything written down in terms of like the rules of classical Latin. So if you broke down, let's assume the word is Latin. If you broke it down phonetically with no diphthong, it would be kahua or kahoa, mm-hmm. which is just chihua. So who cares? <laughs> End rant. <laughs> I no, mean, if good. somebody that speaks Latin wants to come and correct us, that would be great. I'm sure exactly. Wyman will no, chime in at some point when he hears it. <clears throat> sure. Wyman, Wyman knows everything. So I want to call them Kahawa from now on, just because okay. I think it's funny. But I'm not, because I know it myself, and I'm just going to call them Chewies. So, again, and ran. <laughs> so how did you guys, I mean... Erica, you keep more than just Chewies. You know, you have some, you're another a fellow green tree python person. Um, but I mean, like out of all the geckos that we have available in the hobby, like what made you, you know, decide to focus on those more rather than. So you know, I started, I started with, well, I've had a bunch of different species over the years, but uh, I really loved Lichianus. 
And I hadn't actually heard of Chihuahuas until about eight or nine years ago. Um, and the first time I met one, I was just immediately in love. Like they're smarter, they're more inquisitive, they're very friendly and curious. Like a lot of mine, I can open up the cage door and they'll just walk out onto my hand. <laughs> and there's no other gecko that I've ever met that's got that like friendly, inquisitive nature. Plus they're gorgeous. They come in they so are. many colors and patterns and they're just the prettiest geckos. But to have that personality on top of that is just the best. That's awesome. Well, I like yeah. them because they're like, they're big, but they're not like leechy big. Like they're, they're, yeah. you know, they're, they're a nice size. Like if you want a bigger gecko, they fit the yeah. bill. You know, they, they got their, I guess the complete package, you know, their looks, their personality, their, their size, you know, care and stuff like that. So it's the Goldilocks of geckos. Yeah, there I agree. you go. I, I think my experience was pretty similar to Erica's. Um, uh, so I got my first reptile when I was seven, and I actually fell off the monkey bars, broke both my arms, so I was in double cast. This is a funny story, but I was a, I was a, a kid, obviously, and like my favorite thing when I was a kid was dinosaurs. I had like tubs and tubs of dinosaurs, every type of dinosaur. So I'm home, like I'm out, and my dad came in the door, I'll never forget, with like a large paper bag and opened it, and there were two green iguanas inside. <laughs> and he was like, feel better. And my mom was like, what the absolute fuck is this? <laughs> so my, I mean, I guess like, like not that many other people, or like a lot of other people, uh, my first reptile ever was a green iguana and I had two of them and it, it turned out to be a disaster and they didn't last forever. But um, I've had several species through the years, like mostly geckos. I've had some turtles, I've had amphibians. Um, and then I think like a lot of people, I came to Chihua from crested geckos and um I mean, Erica and I've talked about this, but like, so I start. I got into Chihuahua in 2009. And when I got into them, it was like, it was still the peak of the crested craze. Like everything was about cresteds. And then you had this like counter crested movement that was Lichianus. So it was like, if it wasn't crested and it wasn't Lichianus, like nobody really cared that much about gargoyles or Saras mm -hmm. or Chihuahua. Like it was kind of like whatever. But, um, I remember reading about them and being kind of intrigued and uh, I couldn't afford one at the time because I was in college and I mean, they were not as expensive as they are now, but um, I ended up buying one. And from the jump, just like Erica said, it's like, they just have a unique mix of kind of being curious yet bold. They're also pretty smart. Like this will probably get some hate, but they're a lot smarter than crested geckos. <laughs> it's immediately apparent. <laughs> um, so it's, I don't know, it just clicked and, I also tend to lose uh, I, I, something about me. I tend to lose interest in species I can't really hold or that are smaller. So like I've had Eurydactylodes mm -hmm. and some others, but um, yeah, it was like all, all the pieces just kind of checked out. And I was like, I, I really love this gecko. So I've had them and now I have a lot of them um, since 2009. Yeah. That was my experience with, with Crested's too was, I mean, there was like a, a lights are on, but no one's home kind of thing. Like it's, <laughs> yeah. It's a pure, just, I'm going to take off and I'm going to jump. I don't know where I'm going to land. It'll yeah. probably kill me, but I don't care because I'll be out of the hands of whatever I'm in. Right. <clears throat> and they I had some that were just... for a brain. 
dude, <laughs> I had some that were just so spazzy. I never even bothered with them. Like I, I fed them and stuff like that. But as far as like taking them out, I was like, this, this sucks. Like you're not, you're not enjoyable. And of course, those were also the ones that were like the worst breeders too. It was, it was. I had two males in particular that were really bad, and yeah. they were scared of their own shadow. Well, I mean, so I think one of the things that immediately struck me too was like Erica mentioned. I have a couple geckos who, when I go in my gecko room and turn on the light or walk around, they start to come to the front of the glass and like literally like kind of paw at the front of the glass, and it's like you can open it and they'll walk right out. I have others who you can open it and they'll nail you, but like I have a couple. I have a couple who like really do kind of like they see you and they associate like I want to come out, and I think like. Uh, I'd love to have more monitor species right now. I only have one, but from space constraints, like I don't have that. I can't have more than I have now. So it's like, yeah. who are this cool middle ground of like the species that I think is fairly intelligent for their size. So it's like some of them have those cool qualities of like recognizing you being really handleable. So it's like, for me, it's been the, the perfect, the perfect gecko. Nice. Yeah, I Chris Painchab has talked about. I was saying I don't touch Rackies because I'm that guy. They see me and they just drop their tail and then everyone gets mad at me. So I don't, so, I don't, touch, I don't touch any of them. These aren't racks. Well, forgive me. They're really, In the traditional like, sense, I called them racks because that's just like I, the all but, company. Everybody yeah, does, no. but yeah. the, in no functional way do they fit in that group. Like personality, okay. behavior, like care, yeah. like they just don't belong in that group. I think right. they're no. they're probably closer to guards than they are anything else. I would think they're their own genus. There's nothing else in it except for Jalou. So mm -hmm. there's just not not anything in the hobby to compare them to. So I think in, in the last revision, I think um, I forget who wrote it, but they said that um, they're probably most closely related to your Adactylodes species. Okay, really? But yeah. now they're still New Caledonian, right? Yep. Yeah. Okay. So, like, in the group chat when we were prepping for the show, uh, I brought up, why don't you guys explain to those, like myself, who don't yep. know exactly what we're talking about and give us like, a little breakdown, like, what, what exactly Jehovah geckos are? The lizard, duh. Whoever, whoever <laughs> wants to go first, feel free. Erica, go for it. So, they are a gecko. They're about the same length as, like, Alicianus but they're like one and a half times the body weight of a crested gecko. They come in a ton of different colors and patterns. Like they can be really deep green. They can be white and black. They can be red. They can be brown. Um, they fire up and down like mm -hmm. cresteds or lychees do, but behaviorally they're much different and they don't really fit in with those others. Yeah. Like, so, so, Similar to crests and stuff like you guys were mentioning, they're also from New Caledonia, which makes them an ideal candidate for somebody who doesn't necessarily want to have to put up a bunch of heat lamps and other stuff because they do really well at room temperature. Um, they can eat fruit diet. We'll talk about that more later, I suppose, uh, as well as bugs. So, uh, it, I mean, I think at face value, they're one of those species that's pretty easy to keep. And I think they are. Like, I think they're pretty easy to keep. But there are a couple things that make them different from crested geckos, for sure. Keeping them is super easy. It's breeding them that gets tricky. Yeah, yeah. that's that's what I've heard. And, I mean, we'll get into that, you know, in a little bit, too. Um, yep. But I mean, every, that's everything I've heard is like they're they're just like a bigger version of a crested 
you know, they do require a little more uh, in terms of like cage size and stuff like that. Um, but like, first of all, the, the one thing that I see that confuses me the most, and I don't know, I don't think this is as chaotic as it is with like lychees, but like the locality thing. Mm-hmm. What's it may be more chaotic think? actually. <laughs> is it really? It's more I, mean, I, I just yeah, I don't know. Chaotic, I hear all these horror stories about leeches and like people misrepresenting localities or selling some like we see in Green Tree Python sometimes, like people selling localities when it's not that locality right. and then like questioning if it's even a real thing and like so what I mean, what's the is there something similar like that going on in, in Chewies? Yeah. Um I, so my Erica and I've had this conversation too. So my understanding of it is that uh I, I guess i would say umbrella like from the top i think when lichianus were field collected there was much more of an emphasis on identifying specifically where they were from so I, if i'm not mistaken when they came there was already identification about where they were field collected so people had that information for chihua when it started it, i don't think they really had that from what i've uh, been told and so in the late 80s and early 90s, when Chihua first started showing up and being imported, that initial group of animals came from Grand Terre, which is mainland New Caledonia. So at that time, since they only came from one place, everybody just called them Chihua. When you would go to shows and see them on tables, it was just Chihua. There was no mainland, no Pine Island, nothing like that. So I guess it wasn't until a couple years later, I think like 96, 97, that an animal, a, a shipment of animals showed up that were specifically from uh, the Isle of Pines, which is an offshore island off of Grand Terre, New Caledonia. So I think from what I understand, those animals being specifically labeled as Pine Island led to this kind of retrospective effort of saying like, oh, well, all the animals that I had before were from here or from there. So it happened after the fact, people talking about where they came from. And then I think that has also, there's a couple other things about that. So when they first came here and came into captivity, way before we ever had things like, you know, Pangea fruit diets that are nutritionally complete and balanced, people were feeding them baby food generally. <laughs> and the smart people were supplementing it with calcium. So as you guys have probably heard and seen, what happened is, a lot of the first batch of animals that also were probably from Grand Terre ended up developing underbites. And as they bred them, the baby had, the babies had underbites. Um, I mean, Eric and I can both tell you from breeding that without proper calcium supplementation, you will get underbites. So the first several generations of these animals, a lot of them had underbites. And it also happened, like I said, that a lot of them were the animals from Grand Terre. So in the hobby, I think there's still this stigma of, uh, you know, GT, Chihua have underbites. Well, modern day, they shouldn't. <laughs> and a lot of people right. think that it's a genetic thing or it's like they're inbred. And uh, I, I think that's one of the things over the years that I've taken a pretty like hard stance on. I really don't think it's genetic. And I think if you look at the amount of breeding that's taken place in captive collections from small amount of animals, we would see a lot more underbites if it really was something that was related to genetics. But yeah, over the years, like, so by the time that the animals came here from the Isle of Pines and we had a better idea, at least of supplementing baby food with calcium, we were in a better place to breed them. So that meant that when we started getting PI animals into the hobby, 
um, they weren't having underbites because we knew what we were doing by that time. But sort of the damage had been done for the GT animals <laughs> because everybody was like, they have underbites, they're inbred, they're this, they're that. And uh, I think they get a bad rep and they're pretty disadvantaged just kind of in terms of how we learned about the species and the progress that we've made since then. Mm -hmm. So is it, um, is it correctable at all or no? Yeah. So I, um, the super <laughs> unpopular opinion, again, like I've talked to Eric about this, but so the, I mentioned before the first Chihuahua that I ever got was one that, um, the breeder discounted because he was born with an underbite. So I got him for 200 bucks, which at that time I think they were usually like three or 400, but I was a college student. That's all I could afford. I just wanted one because I thought they were cool. That's a freaking so he had now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, now people are charging like seven, 800 bucks for animals with imperfections, uh, which I don't do. So anyway, I got him. I loved him. And one of the interesting things is uh, I think uh, I, somebody who like loved the species pretty quickly. I talked a lot to the breeder and I was like, tell me about the circumstance of this animal. Like are his parents related? Because I hear that these GT two are inbred and he's like, no, I've been breeding them for a couple years. I've never had a problem. They always lay three clutches, just like clockwork. Uh, I've never had a baby with an underbite. The season, this season, the female laid me like a surprise fourth clutch. I wasn't expecting it. And the eggs were not very well calcified. And when this baby came out, it had an underbite. So even though I was new to Chihuahua, like I'd kept reptiles for <laughs> most of my life at that point. And I'm like, oh, that's kind of weird. Um, so I think over the years, I've noticed this trend in, in my opinion, where underbites start, and this is another <laughs> subject we can get into in further detail, but um, when the female is calcium deficient and lays eggs, I think there's a key element there where whatever calcium is transferred or laid in the eggs, if it is not sufficient, what ends up happening oftentimes is that the babies hatch with an underbite, whether it's GT, whether it's PI. And in my experience, having that happen probably one or two times over the years, if you catch it early and you heavily supplement and you feed a lot of bugs with calcium, you can get it pretty well corrected. Um, but I think the best thing people can do is make sure you are feeding a complete diet that's high in insects that are dusted with a calcium supplement and using a high quality fruit diet as well. That's complete. Awesome. Yeah. I've been kind I mean, of like on this crusade of like, <laughs> I like, you know, GT Chihuahua are not any more inbred than PI Chihuahua. <laughs> and it's just that, you know, they were an unfortunate victim of, learning the species and the PIs came at a better time when we were better equipped to take care of them. Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree that I think you'd see more like genetic depression at this point mm -hmm. in time, given, given how limited that, you know, that captive population is, but um, like, what's the, I, go ahead. So I started, I started saying this before, but I got off on a tangent. So that first gecko that I had, like looking at all this data, talking to different breeders over the years, I decided one season to breed him to a female that I had, even though he had an underbite. And I have to like give a disclaimer that if you do something like that, you need to be prepared to keep the offspring <laughs> or yeah. give them to people that you trust <laughs> because this is a very controversial subject. Mm -hmm. But I like all the all the evidence I gathered personally and empirically basically said, yeah, it's probably related to diet. So sure enough, I brought him to a female who was in good shape. She had no issues. I, you know, feed and take care of my animals as well as I can. And um, every egg that they laid and every baby that hatched was perfectly fine. No underbites, 
no issues. It wasn't carried on. So um, that to me, that was further evidence that like, as long as you're correctly supplementing and feeding your geckos, um, I think the underbite thing is definitely preventable. And if it does happen after the fact, I think you can increase calcium uh, and, and mostly correct it. Now, with the ones that had that, you know, the, that had laid those eggs, did you notice any signs of calcium deficiency in the eggshells, like with that starring or anything like that? No. Um, I think uh, we could talk about diets more later when you want, but um, I, the la especially like the last probably six or seven years that I've really had the feeding regimen nailed down, I really haven't had any issues with undercalcified eggs. Um, years ago with older versions of some diets. And I think mm -hmm. uh, a lack of understanding compared to what we know now, I definitely had a couple geckos here and there that laid under calcified eggs. And like I said, I think one or two of those ended up popping out with a little bit of an underbite, but mm -hmm. um, you know, being able to add calcium, feed a lot of insects with calcium, it ended up being okay, thankfully. Yeah, what's the, as far as between the, the pines and the the GTs. What's is there sort of a trademark phenotype for to differentiate those? Like if I saw some and didn't know the locality, like is there an easy way to be able to tell them apart? Erica, would you like to take that question? <laughs> <laughs> the truth is no. We like to say that there are some traits that you can use, but all of those are just a guide and crossed animals can look like either one or a mix of the two and they're they're polyphyletic is that the right word mm -hmm. um so they don't necessarily like look like a cross they can look like any portion of one locality or the other i got you and clutch mates can look drastically different from each other so there's no easy answer they like just, to say. I wasn't sure that, if there was like one that had more color. Like you see, I see like the reddish ones a lot. You know, is that a trait that you would associate with with one population over the other? It's not. And okay. there are photographs of them in the wild. And there are tons of photographs taken on the mainland that look like what we call like the perfect Pine Island localities. Mm -hmm. Like red base, white collar, high contrast geckos. So we like to say in the hobby that smaller, darker animals with underbites and buggy eyes, we like to call those <laughs> mainland, but that's just us assigning value on physical yeah. traits. That's not, mm -hmm. that's not a real thing because the yeah. truth is we don't know. Yeah. And this question is asked all the time, like Erica and I, um, moderate the Chihua Keepers and Enthusiast group on Facebook. And this question comes through a couple times a month and it's, it's pretty consistent. So something, I mean, another part of it to consider too is, you know, a small volume of these geckos came in originally from Grand Terre. A lot of them were dark. A lot of them were brown. A lot of them were green. A lot of them were red. So over that period of breeding, being fed baby food, not correctly supplemented, what you ended up with was a lot of geckos that were brown and green and red with no white just because of circumstance where they were collected. And so again, that has led to this perpetuated stereotype in the hobby that uh, mainlands are small, brown, green, 
not attractive <laughs> buggy eyes and tend to have underbites. Uh, and just like Erica was saying, like when you look at some of the field expeditions from recent years, there are some absolutely beautiful animals with long snouts, normal sized eyes, huge white collars, side white, high contrast, orange, pink that have literally been photographed and seen on Grand Terre. So, um, and I think one of the other things too, like we first touched on was, with Leachianus, there was specific care taken to note sites where animals were taken from yeah. originally. Erica knows more about leeches than I do for sure. But um, from what I know of Chihua, it was just, they just came from Grand Terre. Well, if you look at Grand Terre, there's been some further research done that shows that there may be different populations of Chihua, other like locales and other places. Mm -hmm. um, I think there was, I've read some different things over the years that Michael Troger's collection those animals came specifically from, I think, the northern part of the island. So they're really, really deep red, really deep contrast. So it's just one of those things. It's unfortunate because we have so little real proof um, in the way that things are in New Caledonia now with smuggling and stuff. Like it's almost impossible to go back and get samples and see animals in the wild. Um, so it's unfortunately really a bit of a crapshoot. Yeah, New Caledonia so. won't even issue permits for research. Like you can't really? even go to right. collect data and not take animals. Right. They're really strict about it. Is there anyone is there anyone there from their, you know, parks and forestry? <laughs> Someone on the inside? No. Well, no, no, I was saying no one's doing like they're not even doing their own research on it. They just don't care. So I think um Erica and I both have a friend uh named Andrea. Bakari, and he is uh, from italiangecko.net. He's an actual scientist, unlike me, who's just a hobbyist. And he's actually been working um, with folks there trying to work through the local government. And one of the things he's told us is that I guess a lot of the areas where these geckos are found are also tribal lands. So even if you contact government officials, they have to end up going to like local tribal leaders and asking about, you know, can we bring people, can they yeah. come? And I guess because of the smuggling and what people have seen in terms of, and like the, a lot of, for a lot of these people, these geckos are an important part of their culture, especially Lichianus. So seeing the animals being taken, being smuggled, um, they're like, no, we don't want anybody else here. We're not okay with it. So it's essentially, it's become almost impossible. Now, do we know if those ones that are from the Northern part, like, to put it in, in terms for me and mm -hmm. Phil, like Mitchelli, you know, the speckled rattlesnakes, like depending on the, on the sort of where they're coming from dictates sort of their color and their overall pattern and stuff like that. I wonder, is that a similar situation with these? Do we know if the Northern section is more of that, you know, does have more of the reds and more, I guess maybe even rockier than, cause it is, I mean, I think a lot of people think it's like a, a tropical place, but from all the pictures and videos I've seen, it actually looks more temperate than anything else. Yeah. It gets pretty cold, right? Yeah, it does. Um, we think that they are separated like that, like that the more northern animals are going to be the smaller, more red animals. But the truth is that there's just such a lack of data from mm -hmm. wild animals that we can't say for sure. Yeah. I'm seeing a lot of parallels to green trees. It's very similar. And people get just as worked up about it. A lot of um, a lot of people, you know, the selling point of this is a locality that nobody has. And it's like Except the thing with green trees is even though they're technically still being smuggled, there are still animals coming in from the right. wild. Whereas Chihuahua, there haven't been animals coming from the wild since the 90s. There have been maybe mm -hmm. a couple dozen smuggled out, but 
it's they're much tighter because New Caledonia is so strict on exports mm -hmm. as it is. It's not like they have farms where they can go and say, oh, it's farm bread and smuggle it out that way. There is none of that. Yeah. And I find it interesting that even like some of the people that are tribal people are not because it does mean so much to their culture. You'd almost think that the couple people in there would be curious enough to, to do their own research and share the data with, you know, fellow gecko enthusiasts or, or the world for lack of a better word. You figure out what these nerds want. What's the, yeah. what's the big deal? <laughs> yeah, I mean, I mean, like, you, you hear about it in lots of different societies where like, you know, a, a, a tribal member who decides to take it upon themselves that they love bald eagles and it's their tribal thing in Canada or whatever. And they start doing bald eagle research just because they love it. You know, it's interesting. Mm -hmm. They they're so closed off on the geckos. Well, it'd probably be like someone from like Ohio, like Dom or something messaging me and be like, I need you to take all the data you can on green and oles and send it to me. And maybe like, why? Yeah. But green and oles aren't part of your culture, you know? But also, I, I mean, the people who live on New Caledonia, who's to say that research is really part of their culture? Like, right. we go in and we want to extract as many resources as we can. And we don't really care about them or the well-being of their island. So why would they have any interest in helping us? Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, everything I like when I think of New Caledonia, I think of not uh, like not very populated not it's not like a complete like desolate desert island or anything like that but mm -hmm. it doesn't strike doesn't strike me as a place with a ton of people on it and i'm sure there's a very very small fraction of a percentage of people that even care about this kind of stuff there to begin with you know right in terms of like what we're what we're looking for i think so, anybody who keeps new caledonian geckos has probably had the dream of like i want to go to new caledonia and i want to see them in their natural habitat but when you actually look at it um i think it's like there's one small hotel somewhere on new caledonia or it, maybe it's the isle of pines and it's like otherwise you're looking at pretty much camping so like it's, there's a, it's not there's like a dollar a, general out there somewhere too i'm sure <laughs> probably a walmart McDonald's, okay. <laughs> but it's it's not a like to your point it's not a place where you can easily first of all easily get to second like easily stay and you know have it be a, a great sort of, sort of like vacation experience and then if you really want to get out and be able to see animals i think it's really pretty much like a more field expedition uh camping type of experience Another thing is the researchers that have gone out there have introduced rats and fire ants oh. to like all the mm -hmm. islands. So like there's localities of Legionis that are extinct now because people really? going out looking for Legionis brought in rats and fire ants and now they've wiped out the native lizards. So like has the same thing happened to Chihuahua? We don't know, but mm -hmm. why would they want to go help us find them after we wiped out Legionis like that? Right. How do the how do the pictures of the ones that are that have been seen you know in the field compare to the ones that we have in captivity? Like with cresteds, you look at a wild crested and you're like, that's an ugly crested. <laughs> Compared to what we have now, people are like, you know, if you saw those and you said, yeah, only what twenty five years ago, this is all we had with cresteds, and then here we are now with lily whites and exanthics. Yeah. And so, I mean, chihuahuas are those. How do those compare to to what we have versus what's in the wild? 
Eric had touched on it before, but um, I mean, so the limited amount of field work that's been done has been really, really telling because like she said, there's been animals found on Grand Terre that have huge white collars, high base color, high contrast and animals found um, on the Isle of Pines that are mostly brown and mostly green. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, it, it continues to be something that most people love to split hair, hairs over. They uh, claim that, you know, Pine Island animals are more valuable, but like for all the reasons we've been discussing, unfortunately, I really think it's a crapshoot. <laughs> I just, I look at it in terms of like Bioc green trees. You have people that bring in these other, what are essentially Biocs from some of the smaller surrounding islands mm -hmm. around Bioc. And then they try to market it as something as like some rare locality that's been brought in into something special when you have guys mm -hmm. like Daniel Latouche, uh, I mean, good example. Like, there's a uh, an island locality off of Bioc that's on sale. That's that's for sale right now on Fauna, and the seller talks about how this is a locality that we don't see very often. It's not brought in. And then you have Dana Natouche literally posting on his Instagram today, talking about that island locality, saying this is just a Bioc, dude. Like, it's not anything special. This isn't going to look any different than a Bioc. It might have a little less or more white, depending on how you look at it, but. Like I see a lot of that stuff in lychees and, and chihuahuas and stuff. And I guess that's where the confusion is for me as someone who's not like actively paying attention to sort of that corner of the hobby. Like a lot of the yeah. scams, scams I see on like the BOI threads are usually like lychees where they were like, this was sold to me as a, uh, you know, one locality when I have a bunch of other people telling me it's not like, I don't, I, I just see a lot of that locality stuff being as a marketing thing more than anything else. I think the way to go if you want to keep species that have localities like that is just unless you go and collect it yourself, you'll never know. So mm -hmm. get captive bred animals that you like the parents of and hope that you get a baby that you like. And that's just yeah. the best that you can do. And that's going to make you the happiest. Agreed. And I think another point too, like I said before, I feel like it's a crapshoot. I should be more specific. Um, a lot of the original animals that I got were from Phil Tremper and Phil Tremper is still one of the people that I'm most close to in the hobby. And we've had this conversation several different times. So um, I think part of it also is how popular they've become and how many more people have them. And, and I think just like Erica said, almost like uh, non-specific lineage Lichianus or high color Lichianus, everybody wants high white and then a smaller group of people want high colors. So it's like, that's where most people have gravitated. But if you've been able to get a couple animals from somebody that you really trust and somebody who got them from somebody they trust, I think you can feel pretty good about where you got your geckos from. I have, mm -hmm. like, I mean, just knowing Phil the way that I know Phil and the animals I've gotten from him. And we've even talked about when he got them and who he got them from and where he got, like, where they were sourced. So the animals I have from Phil, I have 100%, um, you know, belief that they're truly pineal animals but i think we've all been guilty of seeing something we like on a table or on a fauna ad <laughs> being like i want that one and you know you ask like what wine is it oh well it's rapashi or it's sleeping lychees or it's this or it's that not to say that any of those people don't have pure lines but it's like once they leave the hands of the people that you trust it's a little bit hard to really track down and be sure of what you right. have so yeah yeah and i mean phil kind of smirked when i was talking about that it's just one of those things like I'm going to trust Daniel Natusha's opinion because he's actually been out there numerous times. He's seen these animals firsthand. He's looked at the, seen the different localities of green trees. He knows what he's looking mm -hmm. at. 100%. You know, I'm going to take that word over the word of someone who's bringing in 
you know, snakes or whatever, who's right. probably never been there. Yeah. And the other part of it too, that's unfortunate is there's still smuggling that's happening in New Caledonia too. So um, there's two, like a couple people who, you know, randomly show up with animals uh, being claimed that they're from a specific place on a specific Island. And it seems like they probably are. So um, unfortunately when animals come in like that, it also further kind of dilutes the conversation of where are they from and who did they come from and where did you get them? Because they tend to come in under somewhat sketchy terms. You know what Mysterious I mean? Mysterious circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. I actually, I was just speaking with a, a friend who was telling me that New Caledonia is going to be even stricter in the near future because it is a hub for people to boat Australian yep. and New Zealand animals out. Mm -hmm. So it's not even about New Caledonian animals. It's other people's animals that they're just using New Caledonia as like a, a refueling station, if you will, to get stuff out. So it's sad. Right. It really is. Yeah. It is. It's just so interesting that these, you know, all the species that come from that island are so popular. A majority of the species that come from that island are so popular, yet we know like 99% of the people keeping them probably don't know a whole lot about the island itself. Mm -hmm. Yep. You know, it's like it's like us getting, you know, uh, I guess condors are another good example. Like you get condors, you have no idea where they come from. You know, it's just, well, it's, it's like even if you're really interested in finding out, getting information is so hard. Mm -hmm. I went on this tangent a little while ago. I think that we're missing something nutritionally, but I don't know what. So I tried to do a bunch of research because we know they eat fruit and we know they eat insects. So I was like, what can I find that's similar to what grows native on New Caledonia? And I did tons of research and can find very little information on even the plants or the fruits that are available there. Mm -hmm. So well, even what if was it? Go ahead. Oh, so even if you're looking, just like access to information is so limited. It really is. Phil, Phil, I'm not listening to music. I think you're just going crazy. It's something like crickets or something. Yeah, it's like crickets in the background. It's probably you because you're outside. <laughs> Look, he's going crazy. Now. Oh, it stopped. It's me, guys. <laughs> I just, I just fed out like a thousand crickets. I'm sorry. Yeah, I can barely I, hear it. It's. Just, I, I did the same thing. That's me. why. So my gecko wall is right there. Oh, oh wow! Yeah. Wow! Look at that. Oh, now the crickets go. stop. <laughs> no. They have stage fright. That's impressive, girl. Thank you. So Very what what was it though that led you to to believe that there's something missing dietary? Um This is all conjecture and I'm not going to call myself an expert on this. But I really feel like we've had these guys in captivity for 30 plus years. If we had them dialed in, we would be as successful with them as people are with crested geckos. And the fact is we're just not like there are a is very, because, is it because there's more people just happen to have crusties or no? Um, I think that that helps, but even those of us that have a pretty large group, like I have, what do I have now? I have 10 breeding pairs, which is a pretty sizable group. Yeah, I'd say so. Half my eggs aren't fertile. And of the ones that are fertile, there's, an astounding rate of stillborn or babies that don't hatch. Mm -hmm. 
And that's from well calcified eggs that look like they're fine. And I cut them open. I wait a few weeks after the first one hatches because I have had them just take a while. Um, and they're and two eggs them, at a time? Yeah, there are two eggs in a clutch. Um, so after the first one hatches, I'll wait a few weeks and cut the other one open. And a lot of times they're like perfect looking stillborn animals that just didn't make it out. And mm -hmm. I just don't think that nature would do that on purpose. Like no yeah. other. Yeah, because they would have gone extinct a long time ago if that was the case. Yeah. Right. And these guys put a lot of resources into their eggs. So I just, I think if we had their nutrition dialed in, and I mean, maybe it's environmental and not nutrition at all. I'm not sure. But I think that there's something that we're doing that isn't meeting their needs. And once we can figure that out, we'll be much more successful. Erica and I talk about this subject a lot, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, has your experience been similar? Yeah, so um, it's actually, it, I mean, nutrition with Chihua has been um, probably something that's always been associated <laughs> with my name. Uh, and Erica knows the story I'm about to tell. But back when I got my first Chihua uh, in 2009 um, is back when, you guys remember the Pangea forums? back in oh, the yeah. day. Yeah. yeah. So um, really very little was known about them. And it, the essential kind of like go plan on Chihuahua at that time was you just keep them the same way you keep crested geckos. And I think right. some people still abide by that. So again, like not being new to reptiles, but being new to Chihuahua, I had, you know, two of them and um, a couple bags of Rapashi crested gecko diet. <laughs> and I watched these geckos get skinnier and skinnier and skinnier and not eat and not eat and not eat. And so I'm all over the forums being like, somebody help me. I'm doing something wrong. And the commonly held viewpoint at that, at that time, again, was just keep them like crested geckos. And literally people at that time were like, you got to starve them out. Like, trust me, they'll break. Like, don't offer them bugs. They don't need bugs. Make them eat crested gecko diet. Crested gecko diet is the best thing that you can feed them. Even if it looks like they're starving, it's fine. And I'm like, I just don't think that's right. <laughs> so, um, yeah. And so that's actually where I started uh, my friendship with Phil Trumper. And uh, I had, I don't think I'd bought an animal from him quite yet, but I knew that he had them and I had been wanting to. And that's where Phil at that time was like, you know, not a super commonly talked about thing, but I feed my geckos baby food because they eat it. And as long as you mix it and you supplement it with calcium, you're good to go. And at that point, I mean, I, the two geckos I had were in pretty rough shape and it was like, everybody else was like, just starve them, just starve them, just feed them crested gecko diet. And I was like, this is not right. So I went out, bought a couple types of baby food, you know, used calcium. And it was like that, like the bowls were for the first time since I kept them, they were like licked clean. And wow. so, um, and it was like, you know, I think at that time, keep in mind, this like, you know, 2009, 2010, people were like, Every, like if you feed bee baby food, it's evil. Like animals that eat baby food get metabolic bone disease and die. So this was a very like taboo thing. Um, and at that time also, you know, crested gecko diet was really the only option on the market. So I say all that because my, <laughs> my journey with Chihuahua basically started and I was literally the first person on the Pangea forum to say, okay, you're all wrong. 
and crested gecko diet isn't working for Chihua and starving them until they eat it isn't going to work. And I shared my experience. I shared the recipe I was using to make food and I took a lot of heat for it. Um, I had several people who were like, you know, shame on you. What you're doing is wrong. You know, you're going to kill your geckos. But slowly but surely, other people started kind of like messaging me one-on-one -on -one being like, I'm experiencing the same thing. My gecko doesn't eat either. I tried this recipe and it works and the gecko's eating it. And, you know, I feel okay as long as you're supplementing with calcium. <clears throat> so um, in a sense, I kind of became this, <laughs> like, and I don't get any enjoyment out of this, but like, I kind of became this figure for like, maybe everything we think about feeding Chihuahua is not right. And it wasn't a very popular place to be for me for a while. Um, but over time, I think uh, I've been mostly proven to be correct because there were a couple revisions and versions of Rapashi at that time. I think they switched out a couple of the protein sources. Like at one point they used egg white, at one point they used hemp powder. Um, and mm -hmm. a lot of people were having problems and they were having problems with the same things Erica was talking about breeding eggs, like general health of their animals, like who have always been famously terrible about calcium crashing. And I wasn't having any of those problems. So, um, <clears throat> you know, over time, I think people started to accept, okay, maybe they should eat more crickets. Maybe they should eat more roaches. Maybe, maybe crested gecko diet isn't the right thing for them. And then mm -hmm. a couple years later, you know, Matt, uh, Parks released the Pangea diets. And I think at, that was at a time when a lot of people were struggling with some of the formulations of Rapashi. So I think Matt's diet hit at the right time. It was super palatable. The geckos liked it. Um, and I think that I would say probably the last six or so years is when it seems like there's been a better understanding and this is, there's not this common thought of like, it's okay to starve your geckos and make them eat crested gecko diet. <laughs> uh, and they need bugs. I mean, that's the other big, big difference is they need to eat bugs. And I know crested geckos don't and a lot of lichianists don't, but anybody who's ever seen a chihuahua eat a cricket knows that they need to eat bugs. Um, so I know it's a long roundabout way, but like, I think, Erica's still absolutely right that while we've come a long way, I still don't think we're quite there. And um, over the years, I've done some digging, just like Erica said, in terms of what types of things exist on New Caledonia that we don't have. I've tried feeding snails. I've thought about small species of crabs because Chihuahua are generally seen near water and mangroves. Um, I've thought about like, are there small like species of birds, like little chicks and nests and things that they eat. Mm -hmm. So, I really don't know. I think, you know, we're about, uh, you know, Erica and I do the best we can. We share a lot of ideas, but I think just like she said, we're still not really there quite yet. It's awesome. Yeah. I mean, it's one of those situations where you, you know, until you, you can't really rule anything out until you, you know, yeah. you've tried it. Yeah. And, and I think I, like, I'm thankful to have had reptiles before I had Chihua because I, like, there was a time where I very truly was like, staring in a cage at an animal that was starving not eating anything and everybody else in the hobby was telling me that i like to just starve it and it would yeah that was okay it. right right yeah yeah so. i mean i know phil feels the same because we've both dealt with you know imported animals and stuff but yeah. like my first thing is get them hydrated and then give them so a little you know a couple days or something to get get settled and then yep. get some food in them like even if it's something small like anything is better than nothing you yeah know? and like I don't know if, if if I were in that position and I heard you were trying baby food and that was working, 
Mm-hmm. You know, even if it was a temporary thing, if it was like, hey, right. you know, this thing isn't eating at all, but I got it to eat this. Like, okay, that's right. that's something like, like a placeholder until you kind of figure out what exactly is going on. Like, sure, yeah, I don't see why that would be such a such a big deal. At the time, mm-hmm. I even took a Rapashi a Crest Gecko diet bag and turned it over and went through the ingredients and Googled all of them. And so because of that, I added rose hips and spirulina and like whey protein isolate. Mm-hmm. And over time, I ended up building this diet that really, really worked well for me. And I only used that diet for probably three or four years before the Pangea stuff was as big as it is now. And that diet served me really well. I mean, my geckos bred, they grew. I mean, they did really, really well on it. I now still use it and I use a couple of the Pangea diets. Um, and I think with some of the newer versions of Rapashi, I think people have had great success with that as well. I just still use the recipe that worked for me that originated from Phil. I mix in some of the Pangea stuff like Erica and I've talked about. We both do a couple of like fresh fruit blends with like mangoes and now cantaloupe and bananas and stuff. So, you know, I think the, the, the best part about being a good hobbyist is seeing your animals thrive. And I think it's, it's another, it's another topic, but like in so many ways, I think social media has been detrimental for our hobby. And it's like when it's easy to get in a place of group think where everybody's telling you Mm -hmm. to do this or do that, or, you know, some person posted that they fed their Chihuahua a blackberry jam and it ate it. So you should too. (laughs) But like, if you're not, if you're not really, if you're not critically looking at your animals and always thinking about what you can do better, um, then I think you're not doing them justice. Agreed. Yeah. We see that a lot though. Like sort of something becomes the standard way of doing things. And then everyone's like, Oh, well it works. So there's no need to to fix it or try and, you know, maybe see if there's something, you know, alternative options or, and we kind of get stuck in that habit of, you know, well, this is, this is how we've always done it. Like, this is it. Yeah. This is what I heard. Yeah. This is what somebody yeah. else told me. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. But at the same time, we're not fixing it. We're we we're augmenting it. We're we're in theory trying to make it better than it is. So mm-hmm. kudos. It's awesome. When I first got Chawa Chihua, sorry, um, <laughs> one of the selling points that was offered to me was that they don't need bugs. Mm-hmm. And I was like, great, like a gecko that doesn't need bugs. That's just even easier. And they lived, they looked all right. The males looked fine. But then Mm -hmm. my first year trying to breed, my female looked like trash. Hmm. And I had, I kid you not, one in eight eggs she laid that hatched. Wow. I switched to feeding half the Pangea and half uh, gut-loaded crickets. And the next year, I like tripled my hatch rate. Now I feed, I feed even a wider range than that now. Mm -hmm. But that was just like the first big thing. I was like, well, they say they don't need bugs, but maybe that's trash. And so I started feeding a lot of bugs, and they instantly just drastically improved. Yeah, yeah. Actually, I have a question for you on that. On that, Mark, I was thinking about this the whole time. We're talking about nutrition and, and and all that stuff is. Has anyone ever, you guys maybe have done it yourselves, has anyone ever figured out what the the prey items are eating in the wild? Like, is there a specific pine tree that grows and they eat the bark or whatever, you know, because there's some crazy bugs in New Caledonia. So I don't imagine that they're just eating whatever we're gut loading them, you know? Mm-hmm. 
I have done tons of research and I have tons of papers on everything native to New Caledonia and I just can't pin anything down. Like we don't have any research for like what's found in their feces or mm -hmm. we just have nothing. The closest I found and don't string me out here for this, but I looked at research on what uh, frugivorous bats of New Caledonia eat. Brilliant. Because that's the best I could yeah, find. That, seems yeah. smart that to was me. the closest. Seems like a good starting point, at least. Absolutely. At least you um, know what fruits are there, you know? Exactly. Mm -hmm. yeah. But even then, so many of them, so many of those bats rely on nectar that it's mm -hmm. like, yeah. it's incomplete at best. Yeah, but you look at it almost like you sort of break it down and do some sort of like, you know, investigative work and you know yeah they eat the nectar but what other you know what what fruit is that what bugs like that fruit and sort of just following that chain until you can find some sort of intersection of what you think maybe chewies would would be eating in the wild that would be in that same you know niche yep yeah i even think about like certain stages of fruit so like there's um there's a series of monkeys in africa that they only eat the fruit when it's green before it turns orange because when it turns orange it has so much more sugar that it's too much sugar for them so they only eat it when it's green and even though it's harder and maybe more difficult to digest they focus on that primarily so like even things like that i mean who, who knows you know the sky's the sky's the limit on that yeah well even awesome. mike talking about the baby food makes me wonder like what's in the baby food and the one yeah. thing that i can think of is like the sugar content maybe there's something right. you know sugar wise um be it natural or, or synthetic or whatever. I know most of those baby foods are actually made with real fruit and not mm -hmm. basically, you know, gecko diet. Um, yeah, right. You know, that would be the one thing that I would be looking at is, you know, clearly there's something there that isn't in the diets that, that they're drawn to. So yep. a lot of it too, is we rely on these diets, but all of them are processed and exposing things to oxygen and heat breaks down nutrition. And I, I was just looking at this uh, vitamin A and dehydrating destroys almost all the vitamin A in really? produce. And we really rely on these powder diets, but to be dehydrated, they have to be heated. And so right. we supplement on top of that, but we know that supplements aren't as bioavailable as mm -hmm. real whole foods. So I, last year I started really heavily, I grow a lot of produce and I started putting in a ton of produce and my geckos look amazing this year. Mm -hmm. But, nice. uh, nice. so Michael feeds uh, mango base is, is his diet. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize this when I started, but like last year I just had a billion cantaloupes. So I've started feeding my geckos a ton of cantaloupes and cantaloupes have like four times the vitamin A. So I'm hoping I'll see that in this really? year because they, you know, nutrition and animals, like you want them to be ready for the season ahead of them, not yeah. the season they're in. So right. I'm hoping since I started that like last June and July that I'll see some results this year, but until it happens, I don't know. And are you like blending it? Yeah. Like, are you creating like a, basically a paste or a, you know, what would so, be the same as a gecko diet? Gecko, gecko smoothie. I make, I make yeah. my gecko smoothies yeah. that are not that far off from the smoothies that I make myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Um, and I use about a quarter of the diet is the Pangea formulas. I sometimes throw some Rapashi or some of the 
um, what's that other one? Black Panther Zoological. I, mm -hmm. I sometimes wrote in, rotate in others, but I use that for about a quarter of the diet. I do insects that are gut loaded for half the diet. And then the other quarter of the diet is homemade smoothies with whole fresh fruits. Mm -hmm. And uh, I use whey protein powder and supplements and they seem to be doing much better on it since I switched, switched to doing thing. more fresh. Erica and I've talked about too is um, I also think Chihua like variety more so than some of the other frugivorous geckos that mm -hmm. I know of. Like I know specifically people will be like, you know, when you get something that your lychee likes, like don't change it. Like just keep with what they like. For my geckos, I've noticed it's super cyclical. Like I can find something and they will clean the bowls for like four feedings in a row and the next three, like they're half and half. And then after that, they don't want it anymore. So I keep like, just like Erica was saying, like I feed several of the different flavors of Pangea. I've tried a couple of their Apache flavors. I've also tried the Leap and Leachy's diets. And then I have a couple that I make, uh, like I mentioned too. And I think the best thing is just rotating them because it, that way they don't get old or they don't get sick of them rather. And they keep eating what you offer. And I think also just nutritionally, like Erica was saying, until, until we figure out what the missing ingredient is, you know, like using mangoes as a base, like using the Pangea fig and insects or, you know, fresh bananas or cantaloupe, like I'm, I'm of the uh, opinion of offering, offering more and more in rotation and hoping that by doing that, you end up with a better balanced diet overall. Yeah. And so, I would, I would also think that them being a bigger gecko, they're probably eating more like larger invertebrates and maybe some like small like baby birds like you were talking about like smaller mm -hmm. vertebrates as well like are you guys feed yours pinkies at all or offer them any sort of anything like that i've tried pinkies um i have a couple who will eat them but for the most part they really just eat crickets um i've been feeding more like giant mealworms and superworms, they eat those and they also really like waxworms. Um, mm -hmm. The other thing Erica and I've talked a lot about too, and I get this question from people a lot when I reference it, but my geckos will eat dubia roaches up until about 20 or 25 grams and then they stop and they don't eat them anymore after that. So well, years ago I had a colony of roaches and it was super convenient for all the reasons that people love them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah same same thing again i noticed that my geckos stopped eating them and when you get to females in the breeding season like protein and calcium are extremely important and i was like for like at one point for the hell of it i was like well let me try to throw some crickets in and see if crickets work and sure enough i, I like i don't know exactly what the explanation is but i see geckos that are like 25 30 grams and above like go for a roach and bite it and spit it back out and so <laughs> for that reason, like when they're young and they're smaller, they'll eat anything that moves. But as they get older, there seems to be something where they develop a distaste for roaches. So I primarily mm -hmm. eat crickets. Is it because roach fights back too much and it's more of a, no, it's, uh, no I, I don't, I don't think so. So like, even if you use like small, like cricket size or smaller than cricket, uh, it's like, it's, you'd have to watch it, I think to, to see what I'm talking about. But I mean, Chihuahua generally have an extremely strong feeding response and predatory instinct. So it's like they go for it, they kind of chomp on it, and then they just kind of loosely like spit it back out. Mm. And it, it's mm. it's to me the response looks like they don't care for it. Yeah. Versus crickets, it's like you know, bam, they hit it, bam, it's like two chomps and it's down the hatch. Yeah, I just I think about like I've had import boiga and 
if you if I put like a, a deli cup with a couple of live pinkies in it, they're mm-hmm. gone. They're gone. More like crack. Yeah. Right? But if, if I put like a hopper mouse in there, they may strike at it or bite it. But the minute it starts to squirm or fight back, they're like whoa, 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 and they spit it out. So mm-hmm. I mean, obviously, clearly you're noticing that it's it's a distaste, as you said. That's yeah. how it is with the subox too. Like they prefer smaller meals. If you give them something larger, they're probably not going to eat it. I give them like two pinkies instead of one fuzzy. Gone. It's, it's almost not worth them getting hurt over it. You know what I mean? Right. Like they're intimidated but, uh, by it more than anything. Yeah. Now, we, we, you guys have been talking about how you guys are making these smoothies and stuff, and I've always just seen the smoothie or the puree or whatever. But we do it because it's easy to combine all the great nutrients and ingredients and make it, and, and it's easy for them to eat. But in the wild, are they? I mean, we really don't know, as you guys have said. But do you guys ever feed them like a slice of cantaloupe or like a I sliver? I totally have. Mm-hmm. I feed them sliced fruit all the time. Um, they don't tear into it as much, but they do lick on it for a long time. Mm-hmm. Um, I found if I leave something in until it gets kind of mushy, they will. But like okay. fresh whole fruits, they just don't seem to bite as much. Which I don't exactly understand because bugs they will go after. Right, yeah. right. Well, also, I, don't know. I mean that could that could be you know fruit falls and they know when it hits the ground it starts smelling like hey that's that's an easy meal so I mean that could even be one of those sort of those leads into you know mm-hmm. maybe they're you know what they're what they're doing in the wild. Yeah, have you ever tried to do like a, a partially fermented like almost almost rotten? Or not? I haven't, but yeah. I do often dice up fruit. And they'll eat diced fruit, but like a whole slice of something seems to be too much for them. It's very interesting. I've but, offered mine bananas and figs, and I've and like just for them to be able to really eat a banana, it has to be super ripe. But I've had a couple who will like kind of look at a banana and all of a sudden like take a chunk out of it. But um, I used to have a tree in my backyard that grew black mission figs. And when they would get really ripe and squishy a couple of different times, I offered them to the geckos. And like I had a couple who would like go ham, like take big bites out of them and eat them. But uh, my tree died. So no. (laughs) (laughs) Are there any fruits that you stay away from? You know, I'd heard for years to stay away from citrus, Mm -hmm. but doing some research, I found that a lot of the, the fruits that are native to New Caledonia are pretty acidic. Yep. This is super recent, but like a month ago, was it? I just decided to start feeding them some more acidic fruits. I started putting some pineapple in. Um, I've tried orange, but not a lot of orange, just like half an orange in the smoothie. And they mm. don't seem to dislike it. Okay. I can't I'm say sure for was- sure that they don't love pineapple because the pineapple smoothie I did, I put spinach in it too. And I don't, I, it was pretty green. I think I overdid the spinach, but <laughs> you win some, you lose some. Oh, I just like in keeping your and stuff in the past. I know like, especially with mm-hmm. and stuff, they say, stay away from kale because it's counterproductive to the, the calcium absorption. If I, if I recall. Um, so I just wasn't sure if there was something out there like, you know, grapefruit, like with us, you know, they say if you're on statins and stuff, don't eat grapefruit because it, it basically negates the entire need for you to take statins in the first place. Like it, it cancels that out. So, yeah, I'm sure uh, if there was something, if there was something toxic, like grapes are to dogs, you know, I'm sure we would have seen it and somebody would be like, whoa, I just tried this and everything died, you know? Right. Yeah. And I think like 
Well, everything that we're talking about, and especially a point Erica made before, is so indicative of a lot of the questions and the things that we see about Chihua. So, and I think it's unfortunate that it's still kind of a prevalent mindset. But at the at the jump, people are always like, "Oh, cool! It's a gecko that's kind of like crested. It's a little bit bigger. You know, people really like them. They have prehensile tails." And you just keep them the same way. Well, then, you know, then you end up finding out that they need bugs. Okay, well, then what's the bug that everybody wants to feed? Dubia roaches, because they're easy and you can keep in your house with no problem. <laughs> so then, Roaches are so gross. Yeah, I don't know so why that's get, people's go-to. So then it's like you've moved on from they don't need bugs to they do need bugs to, to like, you know, they really don't eat roaches much after 20 to 25 grams. So it's like then all of a sudden you're really kind of into a different gecko than what you thought you were getting on the front end. And I think that's where a lot of people specifically start to be like, my gecko is really thin. My gecko laid eggs and looks like it's about to die. And it's like, well, you know, you're like the way that you're keeping your gecko needs to be really different based on what you think you were getting into. Sorry to tell you that. Interesting. So like we just saw a little clip of uh, Erica's awesome racking display vivs. Mm -hmm. um, how do you guys set them up? I mean, babies to adults. I'll, you want me to show you? Let's see. Let me see if I can walk in my gecko room. Just, just remember that this is going to be audio and most people aren't going to be able to see it. So if we can elaborate a little bit, I'm sure it'd be probably be better. So I set them up in bioactive tanks from babies to adults, like straight out of the egg, they go into a bioactive tub. I do use tubs for all my babies um, up to about 25, 30 grams. And then I like tanks because why would I have these beautiful animals if I can't see them? Yeah, of course. Absolutely. Um, plus there's the making the enclosure. Yeah. And they're so inquisitive that it feels a shame to just keep them in a tub. And I know a lot of big breeders that do and their animals seem healthy, but they seem so interested in watching what's happening outside that I don't want to do that. Mm -hmm. um, but I set them up and I use cork tubes. I don't use a cork tube that I can't fit my whole arm inside because I've had to cut open cork tubes to get eggs out. Oh, yeah. um, and I do, on the back of my tanks, I use the cork flats so they can climb on the back. They can climb on glass too, but they seem to prefer having something to hold on to. And then I do um, an angle from the, the bottom of the back to the opposite corner, like caddy corner. I do a flat cork and then I prop another cork up horizontal with a UV lamp across the top. And then I have a hide on the bottom that's a moist hide. And I also have a cork tube, tube uh, running diagonally across the tank and then some live plants in every tank. Awesome, awesome. And then the babies are set up exactly the same as the adults, just smaller in tub? Yeah, and they don't have plants because they're, they're in tubs. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they're, they're darker, but they have bioactive substrate and cork. Awesome. And you, you give them all UV? I give everything that's past being a baby UV. Mm -hmm. And I, I, this is one of the things they say they don't need, but I just find they do much better with it. And so I don't want to risk not giving it to them. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So yeah, Erica and I keep them pretty, I, I think we keep them pretty similarly. And again, Erica and I've had a lot of conversations <laughs> about this stuff. Um, but so I used to keep everything in traditional glass aquariums. I think just like 
you know, when you start with reptiles, everybody goes to glass aquariums and you keep them mm-hmm. and you have them on hand. So it's like, um, I used to keep all of them in like uh, 29 gallon tall for breeding pairs aquariums. And starting last year, um, glass aquariums are super inefficient to keep on racks. I'm sure as we all know. Yeah. <laughs> and you know, as the as PVC movement has taken over, it was kind of something that I had been eyeing and trying to figure out, you know, should I give this a shot? Should I not? And I got to a point where, um, my collection was growing and I was really at capacity. And I realized that if I switched to PVC or something that was more space efficient, I could basically double my collection in the same amount of space. So last year, um, I ordered 30 new PVC enclosures from Leland Ward. So everything now is PVC. Um, and it's, awesome. it's, yeah, it's, it's been really cool. Um, it's Did been a big amazing enclosures. He does. He does an awesome job. Yeah. Um, and I think, Again, I, I wish I remember who said it, but somebody's I, I read a quote a couple months ago and it said something like, if you haven't completely rethought your husbandry at least twice, like you really don't know what you're doing with a species. <laughs> like, and to me, that's kind of exactly what it was. Like I had, you know, I had glass aquariums, I had a couple exoterras, I had, you know, offered, you know, heat, I'd offered UVB, I'd, I've done paper towel substrate, I've done natural. And um I finally feel now like I've narrowed in on the perfect formula for me. And I, and I think it's a little different for everybody, but um, I think I like the fact that the PVC is three sides enclosed with the front being open. I've mm-hmm. noted like before when I had my glass, like the, a lot of them were right up against each other. And I'd noticed that like, you know, males would be looking at males, females. Would be looking at females. At yeah. And like, I don't know if that's good or bad. I really don't, right. but um, it just, it seemed to me that, when I moved to PVC, the, the animals seemed a little bit happier and a little bit more secure. Um, mm-hmm. and, and I also went from keeping primarily cork flats to using more tubes as well. So I, similar to Erica, like I use uh, a couple vertically oriented tubes and flats. Um, I use organic potting soil for a substrate. I was keeping live plants and it ended up being too much work. So, um, Two couple weekends ago, I took a trip to uh, Old Michael's and went and bought, <laughs> bought two hundred dollars worth of fake plants and swapped them out. Um, but I, yeah, I also keep them um, with UVB and um, I'm trying to think what else. I do use a piece of overturned, like an overturned cork flat um, on the ground. And that tends to be where most of the females lay eggs. I put uh, sphagnum moss under it. Sometimes they use it, sometimes they don't. But for the most part, I've noticed that they use that. I've tried using like incubation containers and Tupperwares. They never use those for me. So um, that's probably. And then for babies, for the first time last year, I actually started using a rack system, which seems like I should have been doing that a long time ago, obviously. But um I, I mean, I don't know. I've had some issues getting the humidity right in rack systems and it's like, it's too much or not enough really quickly. Yeah, so yeah. I feel There's like, a sweet yeah. Spot with ventilation and stuff. That's exactly. To maneuver. Exactly. So, um, yeah, I feel like, you know, the nice thing is I feel like last year I really kind of nailed down the formula and got it to work. So what size PVC are the adults in? Um, they break out to be about 20 gallons. So I know like a lot of people, have feelings about keeping them larger than that. And uh, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's interesting. Like I've had a couple people here and there be like, that's cruel. But I mean, you remember a couple years ago, people started to come to 
the realization that similarly like Lichianus maybe do better in smaller enclosures where they feel more secure. So before I had PVC and like Erica heard, like I talked to Erica about this for weeks. We talked about it on end, <laughs> but like I had 29 gallon um, and 30 gallon glass aquariums. And then I had 18 by 18 by 24 exos, which break out to be about 33 gallons, if I recall correctly. And uh, I had a couple, like I, I had about five years here where I was really struggling with their fertility. Like I was getting more than 50% infertile eggs and I couldn't figure it out. Like I tried everything. I was changing enclosures. I was changing and adding heat. I was changing the way I incubated, changing pairs, not changing pairs. And one of the things I noticed was that a couple people who were keeping them in slightly smaller enclosures with more secure elements, like cork tubes instead of flats and things like that seemed to be having more luck than I was having. So, um, it, in the middle, and it was actually, it was quite a gamble when I switched over cause I did it in the middle of the season last year. And I thought it's, it can't go any worse than it's already going. So what do I have to lose? <laughs> um, so I have to say like, once I switched over and changed a couple things, the last like clutch or two of the season last year were mostly fertile. And right now I'm in, in the, in the throes of the first round, um, and I've gotten 20 eggs and four of them are infertile so far. So that's a much better ratio than I've ever had in the last five years. So, mm -hmm. and it's unfortunate because <clears throat> I changed so many things and what at one time that it's hard for me to nail down what it was. I have a couple theories, but I think now the smaller like enclosures actually make them feel more secure. And I think that's both, <clears throat> sorry, I think that's both size cage elements like using cork tubes and i think for me it's i would say it's a little bit also maybe eliminating the glass where they feel like each pair is more secure in their space so well, some people have a lot to say about using 20 gallons but i've actually found that for me it's worked really really well well it makes sense i mean it's a space efficiency thing like you know you can right. put anything in a in a what would technically be you know by by some people's standards you know the perfect size like it's big it's spacious mm -hmm. but if you don't have anything in there then what's the point because that animal's not gonna a they can't even use all that space you know from the floor to the ceiling and that's something right. i've actually learned from dart frogs um and that's something that stuck with me is my buddy alex Manke at frog daddy you know tinctorious are, are a species that is a that's a debate that will go until the end of time you know should you keep tinctorious in groups of more than two and do they need a 40 gallon and mm -hmm. alex is like you can actually keep them in groups it's just you need a lot of visual barriers. You need to fill that tank out so that there's space for them to get away from each other and that they have space to use and call their own. And, you know, it's, it's an efficiency thing. And so it's like using a smaller tank, like that would be fine. You know, just as long as you have yeah. enough stuff in there to, to maximize that, that space right. inside. And, yeah. I, and it's funny too, cause like Phil, again, Phil Tremper is always, when I'm, when something's going wrong, Phil Tremper is usually one of the first people that I call. And when I started having this problem, I was talking to Phil and he's like, no, I mean, Phil still uses uh, mostly glass, I believe. And um, he was like, but I put dividers in between all of them for that reason. He's like, I've noticed that if they can see each other, you know, they do interact and they kind of run up and down the sides at each other. And I mean, I don't, if that's good or bad, I don't know. I think it works for some people, but I, it, you know, me being in a position of having like 30% fertility, I was like, let's fucking change everything and see what right. sticks. <laughs> so, yeah. like, I've noticed. So last year at the end of the season, I split all of my pairs and I put all of my girls out in the snake room because it's a little warmer. I wanted them to beef up before they went into winter cool down. And when I moved them back, so I kept them in tubs because I don't have enough 
uh, Zoomed tanks to keep, you know, 30 extra geckos out in the snake room. Um, and I kept them in tubs for two months and then I moved them back. And now that I've moved them back, I've got two girls that constantly have a nose rub. Like they're just mm. rubbing on everything and they weren't feeling that insecure. They looked amazing when they were in tubs out in the snake shop. And now mm -hmm. that they're in these tanks that are much bigger, they're probably three, three times the size of what they were in and they're rubbing their faces now. So I've, I've been looking at going to those DW enclosures. It's going to take a lot of tanks. I'm not looking forward to yeah. that big one overall, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, me, I did I, it in phases. But it's going to look really good when it's done. I love my snake. Or my snake. Um, I love my gecko racks in the in the living room the way they are. They're really beautiful. But if I need to make my geckos happy by putting them in smaller tanks, then I guess that's what I need to do. It's a disappointment because it's so pretty to look at that wall, and like my ego wants to be like, but just look at it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and I, I think it's a great point. Like people, like somebody, I've I've had somebody say like you know, going from 33 and 30 gallons to 20, like, you know, you're just kind of trying to be able to keep more geckos. Like Cut corners. Yeah. I, I would do like, I literally, I'm one of those people, like I would do whatever it took to keep my geckos happy. If it meant having less, less geckos so that they could have 70 gallon enclosures because they needed it, I would do it. Um, but I, you know, after keeping the species for 12 years now and <clears throat> knowing how they react and knowing the signs and, you know, the way that females look around breeding and the way that they spend time together in tubes and how they pair bond and things like that. I'm like, I, I feel pretty good about what I'm doing. Cool. Yeah, that was, that was my next question is, do you notice as far as breeding, are there some pairs that are more compatible together than others? Like do you, do you introduce some males and it's just not happening and then you introduce another one and it's, Oh man. Yeah. One? Um, last year, so that, that's another adjustment. Um, that's another adjustment that I've made. And Eric kind of talked a lot about this too. I keep saying that, but um, historically, and I think I probably got caught up in the same thing that everybody else has been caught up in. It's just like chasing white, right? So it's like, you know, your highest white male and your highest white female and like put them together and hope that you get the highest white baby. And um, I noticed, I've been noticing it, I think on and off for the last two years, that once I've put a pair together for a season, there have been a couple instances where I have the following season tried to break them apart and put them in new pairings for whatever reason. And especially older, more mature geckos will absolutely refuse new mates under all circumstances, like bite them, chase them, fight them, whatever you want to call it. Um, I had a, yeah, I had a situation last year where, um, a male actually split one of my females like heads wide open. And it was so bad mm. when I saw her that I thought like her eyes were hanging out of her skull. And it li almost literally was because the way that he like bit her and I guess ripped is it kind of pulled the skin apart across her skull. Mm -hmm. So like Jeez. her eye sockets were both hanging out. It was pretty bad. Um, and I talked to a couple people about this again and talk to Phil about it, of course. And I, I, I really have come to the conclusion that I think they tend to form bonds and do better when you leave them together. And I think mm -hmm. like firsthand having seen some pairs fight and some pairs reject mates, like there are instances where a pair will grow apart. And I think, you know, it's, if you see that you can try repairing it and see how it goes. But I think my general rule now is if you find a pair that works, like don't mess with what works. Yeah. Yeah. 
just going back to feeding if we can so eric yeah. you're saying that all your stuff is on bioactive have you ever noticed babies eating isopods or springtails or anything tiny cleaner uppers <laughs> or isopods eating babies we can talk about that <laughs> yeah i found isopods eating my eggs like nobody's mm -hmm. business i I tore down all my tanks last year and I got rid of all my isopods because I had so many. I was suspicious because I found isopods on eggs, but everybody's like, they don't need eggs unless they're duds. And I have a pretty high rate of infertile eggs anyway. So I was like, maybe that's true. But last season at the end of the year, I found a clutch. It was a girl that I was waiting on laying. I knew she was gonna lay any day. I checked her in the morning, she hadn't laid. I checked her at noon. She had laid and the isopods had eaten through about a third of one of the eggshells. And wow. I candled it and it was fertile. And I patched oh, no. that sucker up and it hatched. Nice. Wow. So, How did you patch it? Um, I used a glue and uh, tissue paper and I like painted the tissue paper with glue and then wrapped the outside of the egg. And that Fiber. sucker hatched. Mache, paper mache. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. I've heard of people doing that with like a Lotrimin and glue, mixing that mm -hmm. like chondro eggs. You know, they've they, it actually works pretty well from what I've what That's I understand. Awesome. So I have springtails in all my tanks, but I don't fuck around with isopods anymore. <laughs> I'm done with that for life. Wow. Which is sad because they're cute. They? Um I had the what are they, the canyon something. Oh, okay. But Michael had a similar experience and he had the yeah. dwarf whites. Yeah, so I, I'm just like not going to trust that. Erica and I've talked about this a good bit, but, um, and it's like, I hope there's some people who are listening to this who end up thinking like, Oh shit. But, um, I had dwarf whites and I didn't actually know that they were dwarf whites. That's another story, but they were. And, um, anyway, I, you, I mean, usually I'm pretty good about getting eggs. I know where they're at. You can tell, you know, females are, ceremoniously guarding a part of the tank when it happens, you can grab them. <laughs> but one of the other parts about keeping and bioactive is that sometimes you don't find them. Um, and I had a situation I, like it happened a couple times last year, earlier in the season. And I was, I pulled eggs and there were isopods on them. And I was like, Oh, you know, and I asked a couple people and everybody, everybody was like, do not worry about it. They don't eat eggs. They won't eat eggs. You got nothing to worry about. And I was like, okay, all right. So anyway, um, I, I paired two geckos like in the middle of the season last year because they both, you know, hit the age and the female been laying duds. So she laid a little bit longer into the season than my other pairs who'd been together for longer. And at the end, I think it was like, I want to say it was like September, October, but I went in there and I, in, in my bioactives, I always like move around the soil and stuff like that, like once a month. And sure enough, I came upon two eggs and it was like the way I was doing it kind of, they tipped over and I was like, oh shit, those are eggs. And I turned them over and I picked them up and one of them had been like a hole was eaten in it and the inside of it was completely hollow. And the other egg, half of the egg had been eaten, but what literally what was left was the embryo um, and it was alive. So, I mean, it, it had died, but you could tell that it was a fertile embryo and like it had eyes, it was pink, like it had all the egg tissue of being a living embryo, but the isopods had absolutely shredded it and eaten the whole thing. Wow. Um, and so I actually posted it on Facebook and asked a couple people and it was like, again, it was like 40 people were like, 
you're crazy. You don't have dwarf whites. Something is going like you have a one-off experience. Like you're wrong. Um, and Brian Susan of Sundown Reptiles, who's one of my other favorite people in the hobby, um, he mentioned the same thing happened to him. And he's had isopods eat a couple species eggs. So I feel like, you know, when you ask around, there's people who've had the similar experience, but a lot of people like their first re reaction is like, no, it's fine. But yeah, I mean, I literally had at least one, I think, if not in retrospect, thinking about finding other half eaten eggs, like they definitely were uh munching on them. So a couple of weeks ago, I went through the same process Erica did of ripping apart and tearing down every tank, replacing everything, bleaching everything. <laughs> like it was a pain in the ass, but it's, I mean, it had to be done. Yeah, I've, I've put powder oranges in with, with that last clutch of the cyania. And I mean, I didn't have any issues, but I know that there are some species as far as isopods go that are more prone to like eat calcium, like more calcium, fortified things like eggshells and whatnot but i i've offered eggshells to my my dwarf uh or not dwarfs but the powder blues and the powder oranges and they didn't touch them so, so I don't know, people suggested to me that a lack mm. of calcium was the reason they were going after eggs but all of my tanks have a chunk of cuddle bone in them and the isopods would, were going after those too so it wasn't a lack of calcium like there's no way with a giant cuddle bone in there yeah like that's odd. Wow, that's yeah, so crazy. Anyway, if you keep isopods in your Chihuahua enclosures, be careful. That's crazy. So then, I guess my next question is: Have either one of you accidentally didn't realize there were eggs, and they went full term and hatched? Mm -hmm. That's super cool. I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it was it's not cool, but it's super cool. <laughs> it it only it happened to me one time, and it was years ago, and. Um, I'll never forget, like I walked in, this is when I had glass, so you could see everything. And I walked in and like, you know, every day you go and you turn on the lights and you just kind of like eye and everything. Mm -hmm. And I looked down and I was like, what the fuck is that? <laughs> I looked down <laughs> at it again. And sure enough, it was a little baby and it was like kind of, you know, cinnabund up in like the bottom corner of the tank. And so I jumped in and ripped it apart. And uh, sure enough, the female had like dug, like I in, in this enclosure, I had a cork tube that I had actually filled with dirt and put a plant on top of it. Um, and sure enough, she dug down into the middle of the cork tube. And when I pulled it all apart, I found two eggs that had hatched and I found the other baby in the enclosure. So it was actually, it was really, really cool. I, some people have had that happen on accident and the parents have eaten the tails at least. Um, I, so this is like a, an interesting subject because Considering that females guard eggs the way they do, like in yeah. you know a couple other things, there's a lot of people who say like who are some of the better gecko parents. They take care of eggs, they take care of babies. Um, that may be true, but I've also known a couple people who have found babies in the enclosure unexpectedly with no tail. And you know, I'm not really willing to take that gamble if I can avoid it. That is bizarre. Because that know. was what I was going to ask: is like, are they as protective of the babies if they hatch in the enclosure as they are the eggs? But apparently not. I think yeah. they take so long to hatch that that just seems improbable to me. Because it's not like they lay one clutch a year and that's all they're invested in. Like they can lay three to four clutches a year, but if those clutches take, you know, a hundred is a short incubation period. I've seen clutches that take like 160 days to hatch. I've heard of clutches mm -hmm. that take like 250 days to hatch. Mm. I just don't think that a gecko is going to have the interest in guarding something for 
the mm-hmm. majority of a year. Or they lay them and then they just forget that they were even in there. And then when the baby shows up, they're like, who the hell are you? (laughs) Exactly. Yeah, exactly. And because they do multiple clutches, and I'm assuming they're laying in the same enclosure, do they always pick like the same one or two spots? Or is it just completely random wherever she feels like it? Um, So my girls usually do lay in the same spot. Each, each one has like their particular spot that they tend to like, but I have noticed I, I do let my tanks get dry before I rewater them because I, I just feel like that, you know, helps yeah. break up the microbe life cycles. Sure. Um, so I let them get dry before I water the substrate again. And if I have a girl that lays when it's drier, she'll get much fussier and usually won't lay in her normal spot. So now what I do is I keep really good records. I have a spreadsheet and I predict like usually within the two days of when the next clutch is going to drop for each girl. And I just write it in Sharpie on the front of my tanks. And uh, so if I notice that it's getting close, I'll keep her tank wet, even if it's supposed to be in a dry cycle. Okay. Uh, avoid that. Cause I don't want to have to dig around and, find wherever she's decided they should be now. Right, right. That's super cool. Mine kind of bop around, I guess, if I think about it. And I think it's like they get, I mean, they get pissed when you go to take their eggs. And I almost, I almost think they get depressed once you take them. Um, I mean, they're like, they're very um, brooding mothers, at least as far as eggs are concerned. And so I've noticed that if I take them from one spot, they tend to lay them somewhere else the next time. But then the time after that, they may go back to laying where they laid before. So I think your theory about, you know, maybe they lay eggs and they guard them for a while, but they forget about it may very well be true. Have you ever tried removing the uh, majority of the substrate or the media that you use for them to lay in after you've removed the eggs and think maybe if it's like smell related or, or, you know, something like that. I've, I've never, never thought that. of that. Yeah, yeah I've, never had, tried it. I've had snakes in the past where, you know, live bearing and mom drops her litter and I didn't get all the amniotic goo out per se. Maybe there was some smeared on the side of the cage or whatever that I didn't even realize. And she goes off feed and she gets defensive and gets angry. And I take her out and I put her in another cage in the other side of the room. And then she eats and lives her life and everything's normal. And then I sanitize that cage, put her back and she's back to normal. And I've always assumed it was because she knew that she just dropped and something was up. And I don't know if it's motherly or not, but that's really interesting. Yeah. Cause I know like with knobtails, like my girls don't care. Like they're gone. Like they're in the sand, they're gone forever. That's it. Mm-hmm. But like some of the snakes and stuff, no, it's, I have to make sure that I completely get any baby smell or taste out of there. So I don't know. Interesting. Taste. <laughs> well, you know, Jacobs is Oregon. <laughs> What's it? I mean, are they, are they as is when it comes to pulling eggs? I mean, what is like, is it just, you have to be in that general area of the tank where they know the eggs are for them to fight you on it. So what I do is I, they usually will lay under something, so I'll come prepared with food. You have like a riot shield or something ready to go? Little, little I wait until they've got food in their mouths, and then I use my other hand to steal the eggs. <laughs> that sounded really bad, stealing the eggs. That's what um, you're doing, though. It's great. They do get really defensive, but I was actually thinking this year, um, I experimented with a clutch that one laid that it was in like the first week of January. 
but they were infertile and I left them and she still got them in and it's like mid February now. So I've been thinking about just giving them a few days and seeing if they lose interest. Like now if that it's I a temporary have, thing. Yeah. Yeah. Now that I don't have isopods, those eggs are going to be fine for a while. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah. Cause those incubated room temperature, like crested eggs do, right? Um, yes and no. They can. <laughs> they can, but they'll take you most of a year. Um, and there's also the, the longer they incubate, just the more chances of something going wrong. Yeah. yeah. True. So I think both of us incubate relatively warm. Michael incubates yeah. a little bit warmer than I do, but I like around 80 degrees and that keeps them between like 100 and 120 days, mm -hmm. which I, I like that window. Mm -hmm. Can you determine sex from incubation temp? Who was it? Was it the Gilpins yeah. that did this? Okay. Yeah. So the Gilpins tried, and from my understanding, they did it to a large number of eggs and animals. It didn't find any correlation. Okay. Some Fun years, fact, in the next issue of the magazine, there was actually a very good article on temperature-dependent sex determination that was written by a guy that emailed me, and it is a very, very good article. Excellent. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, same. Um, has graphs and everything. Like he went, he went deep. Full I, I have noticed, and I don't know what about this makes it true, but I have noticed that you'll have like one year where almost everything is female, and one year where almost everything is male. I don't know Very why. Wow. Yeah, it's interesting. Not, I mean, my incubator didn't change the temperature. I've kept so, it the same. I was told at one point years ago, years ago, like maybe 10 years ago now that most Chihuahua clutches end up being one male and one female. Like most that's of them are yeah. one for one. And that, that's um, how a lot of uh, Nephris Amii are, is that oh, it's really? almost, it's almost always one and one. And I've never bred them. So I can't tell you that I have. And most of the people I know that do breed them, they don't keep the babies. They don't usually hold back a lot of the babies, so they never know because right. it takes a, a year or two to, to determine sex. But sorry, continue. Yeah, so I would say it's interesting because probably for me, like 80% of my eggs and clutches follow that rule. But then, like Erica is saying, there will be some seasons where it's like the other 20% will all be female or all be male. So then, you know, what you're ending up with is a ratio that's pretty skewed. And it, like, this is super interesting specifically as it comes to people like buying geckos i have no idea what it is i have no explanation for this but it seems to me that when there are years where people produce more females it seems to me like almost everyone who breeds chihua has the same experience and so from what i know last year most people have told me that they have all had a high number of males. And that happened to me as well. Brian Susan is the only person I talked to who was like, for some reason I hatched out way more females. If you look at like, um, you know, a couple of the other people like ET geckos and, you know, LAC, the Gilpins um, and Troy's geckos. Like if you look at what's for sale, a lot of people produced a lot of males. So what that means, and like, it's, it's always cyclical. Like it changes almost like every two seasons, I feel like, but it's like for the last two years, probably, I guess now, like the last three years, everybody was like searching for males, like 
like gold. Like it was like, who has mail? You got mails? You got any free mails? You got a mail? I need a mail. I need a mail. And now last season that most people produced mails, I have a feeling that's going to mean that in the next, like this season and the season after, like it's actually already happened. I'm completely sold out of female geckos. Um, so people are starting to want to snatch up females because males were more readily available. So I've, I find it super cyclical. Yeah. That's, it's that's weird bizarre. that it happens that way because we're breeders all over the country too. It's not mm -hmm. like we're all mm -hmm. in one localized area. Right. So we can be like, we have this weather pattern, right. but it does tend to happen that like everybody I know has mostly males or mostly females every season. Yep. I wonder if it's a hemisphere thing. It could be. It could be, it could be anything. I mean, I would start looking at like moon cycles and, you know, mm -hmm tidal differential and see if the moon's gravity makes them throw boys or who knows, you know, mm -hmm. that's, that's crazy. Biggest question yeah. of the show is how awesome are those crusty chewy hybrids? Oh, dun, dun, dun. I, ha I have one. I have one. <laughs> um, I feel like, I feel like so I'm going to jump out of her skin right now. The people who are listening to this, please don't look up my address and come light me on fire. Um, mine's a pet. I'm not going to breed it. I promise. <laughs> but I don't understand. Um, I cannot wrap my head around it. To me, that's like breeding uh, Boellans to a random carpet. It's like, why would you take a like a lip? Like you're, I mean, Cresties. I guess you're limited mm -hmm. to in terms of genetic diversity. But why would you take something like that? It's like buying a Ferrari. And then taking a Prius engine and putting that inside instead. So, okay, have you ever held one before? Have you like held one in person? A hybrid? Yeah. No. So I was like, I mean, I don't have as strong opinions of like euthanize them like some people do because I mean, as long as somebody's responsible and you're not like muddying a gene pool, which has kind right. of already been to Chihua, not that you should muddy it with a different species, but. Um, I guess it was three years ago when I was at the Atlanta Repticon show, um, Elizabeth Tomasek of Kauai reptiles has like had one and she, like some people breed them and they are hideous. Like this, like, there's, <laughs> there's a wide variety. Like some people breed them and they look like a bald crested after a bender. And then there are some <laughs> people who breed, <laughs> some people breed them and they're stunningly beautiful. And Elizabeth's tend to be absolutely beautiful. So I was at the show and I walked up to her table. Um, and it's like, it's, if you haven't really held and seen one in person, uh, I got to say like that really changes the game. And it did for me a little bit, but this animal was like, I mean, it was so intensely like crimson red with sort of like an orange marbling. And then the back of it was like this creamy white color. And I've just like, I've never seen anything like it. I mean, and I, like Erica was talking about before, like you can get Chihua in a million different colors and variations and patterns and white and no white. But when I held that gecko, I was like, this is fucking cool. Like I've held a lot of geckos in my life and this is one of the fucking coolest ones I've ever held. It's just, they're beautiful. So, um, that's awesome. A couple months ago. Yeah. So a couple months ago, um, I was actually, it was when I was changing everything over to PVC. I had exos and glass and like UVB hoods and plants and extra cork. Um, and Elizabeth came to pick it up and she was like, do you want me to bring you a present? Like, do you want me to bring you a living present? And I promise it's not a crested gecko. And I was like, 
<laughs> like yes. So I'm like you Elizabeth has like yes. a yeah. Elizabeth has like a huge collection a collection of Lichianus, and she also breeds these beautiful hybrids. So I was like, sure. So um, we met up, and she gave it to me in a deli cup, and I was like, like I mean, I'm telling you it's it was it's fucking beautiful like it really really is and i'm not like again i'm not breeding him he's never going any further than this but uh they really are very stunning animals and i will say also like when i got him he has grown twice as fast as chihua of the similar age like he's a beast he's huge um and i and i think they tend to be pretty big which i guess is common obviously with hybrids in a lot of different species but um I don't, I don't hate on the hybrid thing. I think people have to be careful and you have to be willing to take on the responsibility and the commitment and know that if you move across, you know, sea or something like that, like you do have a responsibility with an animal that needs to go to somebody who's going to have the same level of responsibility that you had. Like that has to be accounted for, but as an individual, they're really beautiful, really impressive to me. They can be. As long as they're not, I mean, they're like you know, I appreciate them for what they are. They're cool and all, but I just I don't understand the, like why I don't know. I think they're neat. I just yeah. I can't I can't get the sort of the reasoning behind it because uh, to me it's like you're especially with snakes and stuff. It's like okay, well now you have, you know, Boellen's guys that want a Boellen, and then you have carpet guys that want a carpet, but they don't want both in one. Right. You know. Right. So. No, I get it. It's not something I would have produced on my own. Um, but, you know, the way it was presented to me and being such an impressive animal, I was like, okay, this is cool. I haven't seen the ugly ones. I've only seen the, it's probably from the same person that you're talking about, that just the orange and the. Yeah. Yeah. Hers are, hers are particularly beautiful. We, I mean, oh, <laughs> Erica and I see pictures of them sometimes and you just let, like, some of them are so ugly that you're like, you know, that may be like a third or second like unfortunately like a second or third generation animal with like some other shit going on because <laughs> like it, they just they can be really fucked up looking you got Genetic really lucky with fire. yours but i did honestly i've seen maybe four or five that are beautiful and the rest are just so hideous mm-hmm. that i don't understand because i'm not interested in keeping crusties because they have a cricket for a brain okay but I can admit that there's some really beautiful crusties mm-hmm. yeah. and chawas are really beautiful. So to breed these two really beautiful animals together and make something that is just such a travesty and disappointment. <laughs> I don't get it. She's not mad. She's just disappointed. It's true. I like carpondros. Like I would keep a carpondro because they're almost all pretty. But like, why would you take these two beautiful animals and make something that's going to be like brown and ugly and doesn't have a crest and doesn't Mm -hmm. have a prehensile tail and is like sad and boring? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't disagree. It's like people tell me people tell me all the time they want me to hybridize indigos, and I'm like, I can't. I want to. I want to see what it's going to look like, but I won't do it. I just can't pull myself to do it. Yeah, you know. So if someone else does. I'll play with theirs. That's how I felt. I agree. I do worry that people are going to get irresponsible with it pretty damn quick. 
Because yeah, they do come out looking just, a lot of them come out looking like an ugly crested gecko. And I have a feeling that in a few years, the hybrid craze is going to die down. People are going to have spent massive amounts of money on these hybrids that look boring. And they're going to try and pass it off as something that it's not. Because they feel like they took a loss at it. Well, what I think unfortunately, of- like we've you, I've seen them on Craigslist, which is the worst part. Like, I mean, you know, everything ends up on Craigslist at some point in its life, I guess. But, um, you know, then what do you, what do you get? Like somebody wants 250 bucks for a gecko off Craigslist. They go buy it. You know, what happens after that? You never know. They breed it with a lychee. Right. <laughs> I just, I think of, I think of like how many times I've seen this with not hybrid stuff where, mm-hmm. you know, a, a, someone has a pet shop and they go to a show and they, you know, they take the, the high school do boy who works on the weekends as their little helper to the show and deli cup lids get mixed up and somebody sells uh, a hybrid that it happens to look more crusty. And not only did they make the mistake of selling it for dirt cheap because they thought it was a crusty, but now that's out there. Yeah, and mm-hmm. that person's like, "Oh, look! I got this really, really pretty, gigantic crested gecko. Let me let me breed with this Dalmatian frog Make butt." And yeah, yep. exactly. And then now, now we got an issue in theory. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Dumb high school I, kids. I'm more curious to see the actual like pairing of a crested and a chihuahua because I feel like that would just be a very interesting event. It would be violent. I don't, sexual. I don't know the logistics kind of, of how it be, works. Yeah, I'd kind of be scared for the Cresty, honestly. Yeah. All the know. people I've seen doing it use like morbidly obese Cresties. <laughs> you laugh, but it's true. I'm sure. I mean, it makes sense. You I mean the, the the parts gotta match up, right? Like, and somehow over <laughs> the last 10 years, like the size of the average crested has doubled. And I stopped feeding mine bugs when I was breeding them because I had some that were getting so fat and getting those things to lose weight is literally impossible without so flat out starving them for months. You're, you're not supposed to put muscle milk in the Pangea? <laughs> I might as well have been with feeding them Dubia, dude, because like, like, I'd feed them Dubia when they were small, but then once they hit you know, 15 grams or whatever or higher, I cut them off because I, just, I had some females that were just getting obese. And I was like, yeah. this, is, this is like, clearly it's, it's the all the fat and the protein and the dubia that was doing it because I had some that wouldn't eat bugs and just ate diet and they were a completely normal weight. Mm-hmm. I so see so I, many and I'm like, that is not a gecko. That's a <clears throat> stuffed sausage. Like if your crested looks like a Lichianus, you've done you it look wrong. Like a busted can of biscuits. That's, you know, <laughs> oh my God. A busted can and like, of biscuits. Lychees look it. that way. Like they're wrinkly. They're supposed to be wrinkly. They're very sack like. Yeah, they are. We call it throat scrotum. A, a lot of flaps. <laughs> throat <laughs> scrotum. They, they have these neck waddles. And you've seen alligators, how they like bite and roll. Mm-hmm. When Lichianas are breeding, they do that. They grab the, the neck waddles and they bite it and the roll. Throats. And yeah. it's brutal. Let me tell you, I've had to Chris break is, up some bites. Yeah. Dude, Chris Painshab has told us about he's he's bred lychees and stuff, and he's we talked about it on the show a while back, and he was like, "It's kind of scary, honestly." He's like, "Lychees, it, like, they're terrifying." There's yeah, been times he showed us pictures of like yeah. bone and blood, and like, oh god. <laughs> yeah, I've never had anything that brutal happen, but there's been times where the fights get so out of hand that it will wake us up, like from the other room. The lychees will wake us up, and we'll be like. 
do we need to go break up a domestic right now? Like what's <laughs> happening in the living room? Yeah, the first time I, the first time I bred crested, I was not expecting them to be as like as it is hardcore as it was. Yeah, I was not prepared for it. And the first time I paired them, I was like, "Wait, what? What are you doing? What is happening?" And like, and then after you know, of course, it was like, "Oh, that's normal. Okay, it's just very. It's like chickens. It's very assault ish." Yeah, it's like a. It's a little bit of like a party trick, like you know, like my friends know about this, my coworkers know about my hobby. So when people come over, that's like always the first thing they want to do is go in the gecko room. So then you like, you know, finally the newness wears off and you come out and you're hanging out in the kitchen or the living room. And it's like, you know, everybody's hanging out and all of a sudden you hear like, we're <laughs> <laughs> like, what the fuck? That's the sound clip for the opener of the show. hundred <laughs> percent. But like, and just being on the I'm same mark, topic. Marking it down right now. Yeah, mark it down right now. Same topic. I want to personally thank Erica for giving me the idea of isopropyl alcohol for breaking up Gila monster fights. Did it work? I didn't have to do it because I did everything in my soul. I literally had the cotton swab with the alcohol and hemostats. And I was like, oh, here we go. Here we go. Don't do it. Don't you, don't you fucking do it. And then. Boom, he latches onto that girl and she bit him back in the face. And now there's blood and venom. And I was just like, Been there. Which one do I which one do I give the, the smelling salts to? And then oh. but, right. And, the, and meanwhile, in the back of my mind, I hear Rob Stone's face going, just let it happen. Just let it happen. Yeah. <laughs> just, it's fine, just, man. It's fine. It's fine, dude. This is what they do. Just let it happen. And then right after I heard Rob yell at right me in my, in my mind like five times, they both just let go. And the girl was like, I am done. And the boy was like, we're, we're, we're done. We're, this is it. We're finished. And then so this year, uh, needless to say, after multiple. I paid for an hour. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> After multiple unsuccessful you know, pairings, you know what that was. Uh, Is we were not was breeding Rob, this year. It was Rob Stone from Colorado doing this, and he was splitting. <laughs> he used his Jedi mind tricks to like split up your yes. healers from another dimension. Yeah, it was. It was. He was using the Jedi mind trick. I so, just yeah, had so. to use that trick last week on one of my condros. I wasn't going to feed her because she was deep in shed, and she. I guess got really pissed about that decision and decided to uh, strike and wrap her. I keep the bottoms with the puppy pads. Yeah. Flipped oh, the water bowl, like sprayed water everywhere and was trying to choke it down. And I gave her a minute mm -hmm. thinking like, she's going to realize and she's going to stop oh, this madness. No, she didn't. I had the to sit there and stick hand sanitizer on my hand and stick it in her face until she let go. And then she still wouldn't, like she was still wrapped around the puppy pad. She wouldn't let go. Yeah. So I had to sit there with her while all my other snakes are getting pissed off because they're waiting to eat and untangle her from this puppy pad that she's like, I'm going to eat this because you're an asshole. <laughs> I had a freaking dollar for every time that ha that's happened here. Well, I don't keep any substrate with my babies now because I'm like, I don't yeah. trust you. And you're so small that I don't want to be doing this with you like this big girl she's like five six hundred grams i'm like i can mm -hmm. handle handle untangling her but i don't want to have to pull right. shit out of a hundred grand condor's mouth i had a baby condor swallow some paper towel Oof. and it survived i waited like a week didn't do anything with it just made sure it was hydrated and stuff and it spit it back out i got pictures of it on my phone so i'll have to send it to you but that snake's still alive it's in the room still a pain in the ass 
Well, long story short, thank you for the tip because it would have worked had I had to use it. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you. Oh, man. How do you know that, though? I think you need to try again just to make sure. I no. actually heard that tip <clears throat> from, um, is it Kim Burge from Southern Condros? She did a podcast years ago on Green Tree Pythons, and I heard that podcast, um, and she learned it from Gila Monster people. And I know some people with Gila Monsters, so I was like, let's give this a go. Let's see if this works. And it works. And I've tried it on tons of stuff since. Cool. I've heard of people using Listerine, but I've never heard of like straight isopropyl. I always have that because I use it as hand uh, as sanitizer, and then I have mm -hmm. a pump bottle that's uh, hand sanitizer that's just like isopropyl and uh, aloe gel, I think. Mm -hmm. um, and so I just always have it in like pump bottles everywhere, ready to go. And so it's just the easiest thing. Yeah. Yeah. Is pairing chihuahuas are they as, as as lychees? No, they're nowhere near uh, as brutal as lychees. So they're, you can have incidents, and I've known people that have, but I've got 12 pairs of lychees and 10 pairs of chihuahua, and hands down, the chihuahua are easier. They're gentler on each other. They tend to do much more like nice courtship rituals instead of like, I'm going to bite your fucking face off right now, mm -hmm. like lychees. <laughs> um, <laughs> but their fertility rate is so much lower. Like I clearly don't have it's it dialed because in. There's no hatred. Maybe, maybe it's the rage. <laughs> I don't know, <laughs> but they, they definitely seem to like each other more. And like, I'll notice I, I have um, a horizontal slab. It's like six to eight inches wide in each cage. And it's about six inches under the UV light. And almost all my pairs will sit side by side like smashed as close as they can get to each other under that light. And the light spans the whole tank. So there's plenty of space for there's them, no reason for them to, to hang, hang out. <laughs> yeah, but they, ha yeah. they hang out like that. And when they go in the tube, they usually go in the tube together and they smush themselves as close as they can. And the tubes are all big enough for me to put my hand down. So there's plenty of space and they just choose to always be right on top of each other. Have you, have you ever noticed uh, a cigarette butt or a small bottle of Chianti? <laughs> no, I haven't tried, but I do play the music, so nice. maybe Good. that helps. Good. Light some so candles. Listen to Sting. They'll they'll bury the eggs, but I've like they'll also attach them to the corner mm -hmm. part. They right? totally like, glue they, them. They have that that felsuma thing where they're just like, "Yep, this corner, I'm gonna stick yeah. it right up there like Spider Man." I used to keep, um, instead of the big diameter corks, I used to keep like three inch diameter bamboo tubes like that you get from a garden nursery. Oh, that's, that's a nightmare. I had to cut up open so many tubes that I gave those to the Lichianus this year. I was like, I'm not cutting open any more cork, uh, any more bamboo tubes to get eggs out because they would go and glue them right in the middle of the tube. Like, of course. And there's just no way to reach it. Yeah. One of the other interesting things I found too is females seem to know when eggs are infertile. And if the females know that they're infertile, they will just like lay them and disregard them like like trash. <laughs> like, like if you look if you look easier. 
Yeah, like if you look in your enclosure and you see like a random egg sitting in the middle of it or, you know, on the food bowl or on your feeding ledge, like chances are it's probably infertile because it's in my experience, they mostly guard when they're fertile. Mine usually dump their infertiles in the water bowl. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I keep big water bowls in mine and they'll just go right in there and drop their eggs. I'm like, well, I know mm-hmm. that wasn't good because. Right. Wow. wow. Now, do you see yours drinking from standing water like that? Yeah, all the time. That's, yeah, that's a good question because I've we uh, people ask that a lot. Like, um, do you provide water? Why do you need to provide water? Usually, I just spray them. No, mine might absolutely drink out of the water bowl. Because I that gave just... my crested water bowls, but I don't. I don't think I ever saw one actually drink out of it. Hmm. It was always after misting; they were, you know, licking it off everything. Mm-hmm. They do lick when I mist, but to me, that just seems like very lazy husbandry. Even if they don't ever drink from a water bowl. It's such a simple thing to just make sure that they have access to water. So I don't ever want to tell somebody like they don't need it or they don't use it because they should just always have the choice. I knew someone years ago, actually, I got one of my first Chihua from her and she custom built an enclosure in her living room around her television. So it was like, there were, it was like, you know, six feet tall, like on either side, it was like a tall column connected on the top. And then the bottom of it was open. And she had like half of the bottom was like an open water feature. And Mm -hmm. um, she mentioned that on multiple occasions, she would find the Chihua fully submerged in the water or like head out in the water, which I thought was super interesting. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't offer that much water for what it's worth, but I thought it was interesting when she told me that. Yeah, you guys get a lot of people in the group asking about like the little waterfall features you get from PetSmart and cages and stuff like that. Like the, the, well, the aquatic death traps, as I call them, because it's a great place for your animal to get stuck in and drown. Or just lay its eggs inside there. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if I've seen that one. Is I think the most common thing we get in the group is people being like, I just got this male and I got this female and I'm going to breed it. So watch out <laughs> and for like, and the animals they post are like scabbed or have floppy tail or metabolic bone disease or an underbite. And you're like, and it, like, you know, you know how it is. Like you can't tell anybody anything nowadays. Like they have it all figured out. They just want to, yep. they just want you to know that they're going to do it. Do, uh, do they drop their, do they drop their tails and do the tails regrow if they do? Another point of contention. Mm-hmm. They do not drop their tails easily. Okay. They can drop tails if stressed enough. Right. In all of my Chihua, I've had one that dropped its tail when it was very young. Mm-hmm. Um, it partially regrew. So it, re- a- it regrew. It just wasn't a real tail, so to speak. Yeah, and it wasn't okay. like full length and the scales aren't normal and it's like it's not a it's not a good <laughs> tail. <laughs> yeah. But that's another point of contention. People love to say that Pine Island animals don't regenerate their tail and mainlands do, but there's really no evidence behind that. And mm-hmm. the animal that I got <laughs> that regenerated its tail is from like the first person to breed them in the States. And if I can't trust his animals localities, then who can you trust? Yeah. So I just 
feel like it's a another one of those situations where we don't have enough information to make a call. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I'd I had a, you'd sneeze and they drop their tail. You got to work to get a Chihuahua to do it. I had, uh, I don't know, it was probably 10 years ago now, um, and it was an animal from Phil Tremper's pinky line, if I remember correctly. And I put her in the like put her in the enclosure. I wasn't paying attention as I, it was a glass. I was putting the lid back down and she jumped up. And when I put the lid back down, um, it caught her tail. And I remember like hearing a noise being like, Oh, that's weird. And I went back the next morning and like pulled the top off and like a tail fell down. <laughs> and uh, I mean, I shouldn't laugh cause it's not funny. Yeah. But that, that animal was obviously Pine Island, never grew her tail back. And then last year, I actually um, bought an animal that was from Bill Hughes' lines. And um, the same thing happened. The guy who had her used tubs. And when he put her in the tub, like I guess her tail was still hanging out of it. And he didn't realize it. And it was like a snap tub. So when he snapped it, it was like, oh, man. Yeah. And she also has never regrown her tail. Um, but just That's like Aaron says, thing. like... I wonder about that. Like yours are adults. The one that I had that lost her tail, lost her tail when she was only like three grams. Mm -hmm. She had just been shipped to me. She was a super young baby. And so maybe there's something about like growth hormones and like as they're maturing, they have a stronger ability to regenerate versus when they're already an adult. Mm -hmm. But I don't know anybody else who's had a baby lose a tail to ask. The first one, that one that, that I had, it was like a six or seven gram animal. It was she was pretty small. Okay. Um, but then the the new female, the older one I have, she was an adult when I got her. So how big are they when they yeah. hatched? Like weight wise, what's the average roundabout? Like around like three to four grams is average. Like some get over like four, four and a half. But yeah, Do you have some like is it like cresties where the longer like if they're if they're in the cooler longer incubation, they come out a little bigger, more robust. No. No. Yeah, I don't agree with that either. Um, yeah. The biggest Some one I patched so. was like 4.3 grams, I think. Mm -hmm. And I've noticed that it seems to be the ones that hatch the fastest that are the largest. Hmm. Yeah, I think most of mine are probably in the upper three, like 3.6, 3.7 or so. But um I mean, I've definitely seen some people claim that the reason they incubate longer and lower is for size. And I, I personally, I mean, before I used an incubator, I never noticed a correlation with that. So I don't do it. And how quickly are you guys able to decide, like, know what, what the sex is on them? Mm, good question. We feed bug heavy, and so they grow pretty quickly. And that's mm -hmm. not and like power the, feeding. You get the bulges from the males early, like... It's not bulges. Um, you you check for pores and you okay. do it with a loop like you would for crested geckos. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm I'm pretty confident by like 15 grams, but I won't guarantee it until they're like 30 because I've totally had animals that I was like really stoked that it was going to be a male because I really needed that nice male. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, at 30, 40 grams, I'm like, this is definitely a girl now. <laughs> Mm -hmm. So they can have like females can have pseudo pores. Mm -hmm. And so it can look like a male and still wind up to be female in the end. Um, are the, there's are something the, are the femoral pores more predominant or, or more defined on a male and they're, they're on the female. They're just really small or they just don't have them at all. The females don't have, 
They can have like a Sorry, dimple. Mm-hmm. They can have like a dimple that when they're small looks like a pore, but it's mm-hmm. not, it's not really a pore. And so as, not- they, as they mature, it becomes very obvious that it's not a pore, but it's like a dimple in the area that looks like it could be a pore. So it's not like a gomids that have, you know, a, a, a long array yeah. of pores, like Mark like obvious. 50 or 60 pores down there. Mm-mm. Okay. No. no. So that's, it's one of the things between the two species with Chihua and Jalu that people talk about. I think it's Jalu that allegedly have an extra row of pores, Erica. I think that's right. Um, and again, like we haven't really talked about it up to this point, but there's so few animals that were tested or tagged or photographed as being Jalu that it's really, I mean, even in the last revision, they say like, we think this is the case, but we're really not that sure because we need to see more animals to be sure. But anyway, back to the question. Another thing I've noticed, and I think I've probably been right about 90% of the time is even around like eight or 10 grams, you can start to tell even before pores, females have, lighter pores like their female their their pores are usually like lighter more white and more circular and males are generally like yellow or a little bit orange or a little bit green Mm -hmm. and um again it this has not held true for me all the time but i would say 90 percent of the time you can look at the underside and if you see like more round lighter colored pores or more lighter color scales sorry round lighter colored scales it's probably going to be a female if you see scales that have a little bit of an angle on the bottom and they're darker colored or more yellow, it usually ends up being male. But just like Erica said, like I've been thrown off by that. And I usually like to wait until an animal's like 25 grams to guarantee sex. What's the, what's the size and age that you're usually, you know, that a female's ready to be paired up. That's another for great both question. Sexes, actually for males and females, <laughs> what, what's kind of the, where do you guys decide this, this animal's ready to go? I think males are generally, so my, my view on this has actually changed a little bit in the last couple of years. Mm-hmm. A, a lot of people for a long time were saying like, oh, males have to be two and females have to be three. Um, in my experience, I think that males need to be like usually like 14 to 16 to 18 months old. Um, and it depends a bit on size too. So like Erica said, we both feed heavier on bugs. Um, I raise babies in a rack that also has a thermostat. So I mean, I keep them a little bit warmer, which means they eat better. But um, I have a theory that when you put two geckos together for the first time, I, it's not as dramatic as it is with Lichianus, but I think there's a period where the females kind of like test the males. It's like, I'm sizing you up, you're sizing yeah. me up. And See so like, you, yeah, like you could, you could put a male in there who's maybe like, you know, 12 or 13 months old and like 50 grams. But um, in most experiences that I've seen, like they end up getting bossed around and get their ass beat. Um, But it's like for females, my general rule is I like to wait until they lay at least two good looking dud clutches. um, Or if they turn like three years old and they're at least like 60 grams and a good body weight, um, then I'll do it. So it's usually either one of the two. I, I mean, I've had some females who have laid eggs early and like, you might be like, Whoa, like I had a female last year who laid eggs 
I think she was like 10 months old and it was not expected, but like she stopped her appetite. Wasn't very good. She kind of stopped eating. And I was like, this is really wild. And one day I opened her cage and she laid an egg and it was like, okay, so, you know, don't, don't look at a 10 month old or a 13 month old animal. That's like laid eggs for the first time and be like, sweet, we're in business. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> because the other thing too, um, is, uh, I think these geckos continue to grow substantially throughout their life, just like a lot of other reptiles. So, you know, a lot of people say like, yeah, you know, pair them up at like two or three years old. But I've noticed, especially this year, like the geckos I have who are like eight, nine, 10 years old are all like 80 to 90 grams. Like they're huge. And wow. the geckos that I have who are like, you know, three to four years old are like, you know, high 50s, 60s. So it's like there, there really is a period of, um, can they breed at like, you know, a year and a half old? I don't recommend it. Yeah, they could like right. the same way that, you know, a, a teenager could, a teenage right. human being could, but it's could like. Could and should are two different things. Yeah, Exactly. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I've had a female drop eggs at 10 months. And I've also had one that dropped eggs. Her first time was 14 months and she laid eggs that entire year and she looked rough. And I wound up holding off on pairing her for an additional year just because she wouldn't stop. And she just always looked so rough. And it took me moving her into the snake room that has a shorter light cycle to like get her to calm down and put on weight. But I've noticed the same thing. Like they do males get bossed around. If you pair them up younger, mm-hmm. I haven't had good eggs from a male that was under like 22, 23 months old. And I've tried to pale pair males that were a bit younger than that. I think my youngest was 18 months, but he just got bossed around and nothing mm-hmm. got done. Um, and I've noticed the same thing that you, you said, Michael, that all of my really big animals are like eight, nine years old and they're, mm-hmm. you know, 80, 90 grams. Mm-hmm. And they're not, they're not like chunky looking geckos. They're just right. big. Yeah. Agreed. Well, I think we covered pretty much everything that we wanted to get into, unless Phil has anything else he'd like to. Uh, I agree with you. I think that we, this is a phenomenal show. I'm loving every minute of it. You guys are awesome. Uh, There is one question that I, in all of my quests to find out how to say Chihua correctly, I couldn't find the meaning of it broken down anywhere. So is, it's obviously not a locality. It's obviously, what does it mean? New Caledonian for a fighting chicken. <laughs> Does anyone even know? I mean, like, if you guys don't know, I mean, I'm cool with you guys not knowing. I just, let's figure that out. Let's find out. Because I'm, you know, the taxonomy nerd in me wants to dissect every little vowel and consonant out of there and find out what it means. I have no idea. I don't even know what the main language is on, on New Caledonia. Like, what the yeah. native... Yeah, like, I mean, I was looking at papers from, you know, 1886 or 1876 to 1900, and I couldn't find anything. I looked it up at one point, and I actually think it's French. Yeah, because I was looking at... It was a French colony at one point, but it's not any... Right, and I was was looking in French and German text because that's the majority of the stuff that came out of New Caledonia, but I couldn't find anything, you know? Yes, French, French, it's a French territory. Yeah, so if anybody who's listening knows the etymology of it, please let us know. Yeah, I'm educate dying us. to know. Yeah. Same. 
Same. We just need to find somebody in New Caledonia that knows the answers. I have I have textbooks that are a hundred years old that have like broken down etymology, and there's I there's nothing in there like under what was it platy was it platydactylus was the original <laughs> one. So nothing mm-hmm. under platydactylus, nothing under rachidactylus. Okay, so um, <laughs> one second. Oh, here we go. They've, they've they've been reclassified a couple different times. I think there were even I think they were in like um, all of these things used to be named with Latin, and they had to break down and describe the animal using like appropriate applicable Latin words. Platydactylus. Mm-hmm. It's also hybridized with ancient Greek. Um. Yeah, but I have this, and can you see that? Oh, that's awesome. I need to find that. You need to send me that, girl. I will send this to you. I got Please. this in college for a phylogenetics course, and I have kept this for like 15 years because it's so handy for breaking down those things. Yeah, definitely. I need to get that. I need that in my life. So are we going to flip through that real quick and see if we can I decipher something? Doing that. So do you want Chihua or Platydactylus? No, Chihua. Well, I know that. What's the new one? The uh, uh, Nero Nero Gecko. Yeah, I know that broken down is um, is like near. It, what is it? The M is silent, essentially, right? Yeah. Yeah. Well, wait. So I I look up French to English, and then I tell it to detect what Chahua is, and apparently in Arabic it means lust. So. Right. That's that's the only thing I could find is, is it's Arabic for lust. I don't think that's right. Probably not. But lust for blood. <laughs> that's true. Nice. Blood lust. Yeah. Right. Right. I'm look yeah, I'm sitting here looking through some of my research and stuff just like we were saying before, Jalu have th- uh, three rows of pores on males. Chihua have four rows of pores. It's one of the difficult things to sit there and kind of count out when you have a gecko turned upside down. Who doesn't want to be turned upside down? <laughs> you know what's funny is Chihua is probably just New Caledonian for gecko or lizard or something. <laughs> Maybe. I'm sick of it, meaning. So on the, um, on the current taxon, on the current genera, which is, I think it's 2012, in uh, Nereo gecko, which... I have it written down here is uh, derived from Zhao, which means a being from the spirit world, a language used in the northern province, mm-hmm. nord of Belade, through a city I can't pronounce. Um, the name is parallel in construction to the sister taxon. Uh, uh, devil is an unsuspected Kanak word. Yeah, this makes no sense at all. <laughs> So in this book, I'm not finding the start of the word Chihua, but the ending O-U-A is of the tail. Okay. So the first part of the word would be describing the tail, but I can't find, I can't find the prefix for that. Interesting. All right. So if just going back, cause I, I messed, I messed that one up. I was I wonder reading if it's wrong. prehensile, some sort of prehensile, uh, yeah, I was reading the wrong one. This one, 
is essentially uh, the Greek word of minaros, meaning mossy, and gecko from the melee of gecko, uh, species of gecko commonly. Blah, 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 blah. Sri Lankan origin of the word derived from Singhalese of gecko, and possibly the name of a masculine should be niaro gecko. It refers to the mossy or lichenous markings of the common. Uh, uh, yeah, so basically, basically means mossy gecko. So they basically said, "Hey, you're a platus. Go fuck yourself." <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Yeah. <laughs> We're gonna get to the bottom of this, children. I'm, I'm very curious. I'm on a crusade now. We'll have to. Phil will find it. Oh, I will find it. I'll blunt out the shit. Out they of call this. him the wolf for the reason. <laughs> the leader of the pack. I look forward to it. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. Well, where can people hunt you guys down, Erica? Um, I'm on Instagram, Facebook as Arboreals Anonymous. Um, I do an awesome also. Name. Thank you. It is. It is. I love alliteration. I think you know that, Michael. Um, <laughs> I also post availability on Morph Market. Cool. Nice. Uh, yes. Name on Morph Market. Arboreals Anonymous. Okay, Same cool. thing. Cool. Yeah, I don't mix it up. <clears throat> Good. You can find me on Instagram or Facebook. Uh, or YouTube, I guess, as uh, the Chihua Chamber, and then my website is just thechihuahuachamber.com. So I'm gonna go subscribe uh, on YouTube right now. Right now, <laughs> you'll be my whopping 110th subscriber, or something like that, which I really don't deserve because I never post videos. So you don't. <laughs> I really don't. <laughs> it's funny which is a like, shame I, I, because when you post them, they're so good. I, I have like 20 on my phone, but you know, it's like <laughs> we touched briefly on like how social media has changed the hobby. And it's like, if you don't put up like a, dr a dramatic cover picture of like blood everywhere, so the and, first like, video fighting, was, like, the first video to pop up is white collar Chihuahua eats a crested gecko exclamation. That's real. That's real. I'm really. I'm really pissed. Cause I just sped through that. So I could be 110 and Justin beat me to it. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, if you look at the comments on that video, it's typical of social media. It's a bunch of people commenting and accusing me of being cruel without reading the description. So, <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, it was a stillborn crested gecko, and I was like, well, let's see what happens. So, um, I'm all for that kind of stuff, man. Waste not. Yeah, me too. Agreed. Uh, that's that's why I keep it wacky. When I had cresteds drop tails, I had a corn mm -hmm. snake that would more than happily eat those tails. And I was like, at least it goes to something. It doesn't have to get flushed down the toilet or whatever, you know. Yeah, as yep. crude the as one it person is. Who, the one person who enjoyed my five seasons of 30% hatch rate was my red Aki. So I'm sure she'll be disappointed. <laughs> I'm sure she'll be disappointed if things get better this year. <laughs> but, nice. you know, there's less expensive things I can feed her. Yeah. But anyways, thank you guys both. Yeah. We this was awesome. Thank you so us. much. Great really show. enjoyed it. Yeah. Thanks so much. I will have this up momentarily. So. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Later. Good night. Bye. That's a good one. That was a good show. They're good folks. So did I. I learned a lot. I learned a ton. Yeah, I mean, I'm sitting here as one of those crusty gecko jackasses that's like, are they like a crusty when you breed them, when you keep them, <laughs> when you feed them? It's like, no. So. I just remember I was over... Uh, 
I was over Manny and Tiki's and uh, and Manny had just got some Chihuahuas and he's like, hey man, you want to see my new Chihuahuas? I was like, of course, you know, pull them little suckers out. And like, I really, any of that, any of that new Caledonian stuff, man, I, I don't like to touch it because I'm that guy. They just, they look at me, they're like, oh, he has a beard, drop my tail. So he puts this thing in my hand. I'm like, man, this is awesome. He's like, yeah, paid $1,500 for that one. I was like, take it back, get it away from me. <laughs> So <laughs> I don't want to break it. I don't want to break it. Yeah. But uh, they're awesome, man. They're cool geckos. They are. I, you know, that's, I've, I've said for a long time, I would get back into geckos for, for Chihuahuas. Yeah. Um, and now Strophurus after Meeker's article and yeah, seeing right? more of those. And I mean, even knob tails have kind of, I've, they've piqued my interest, but yeah. it's one of those Did things. You... It's like, I, I can want them. I don't know if I'll ever actually pull the trigger on them, but yeah. You know, Danny got that Chihuahua Daytona, and <clears throat> dude, I was looking at that thing. That thing was awesome. I can't, I can't wait to see what it looks like now. It's been, you know, six months. I whatever. haven't even seen it in a long time. Yeah, because usually yeah. when I when I go over there, I'm like, let me play with the Chihuahua, and she's like, now he's, I just fed him, or he's sleeping, or whatever. Something. <laughs> whatever. So, but they're awesome. I mean, they, like handling hers, and I have another friend who who just recently moved down here. That's a friend of me and Danny's. Uh, amber and she has one too and like handling them like i totally agree like they're definitely like don't seem to really have any fear they're kind of just like okay you know like they're yeah. they're aware of what's going on but they're not like crested where it's like i'm gonna do everything i can to get as far away from you as possible yeah i'm gonna nose dive you know. off of your hand and yep. onto the concrete floor yep yep so anyways uh we will see y'all monday night at nine for snakes and stogies 64 64. Uh, once again, the show is brought to you by MP Cages and Exotics and Steve Snake Shuri and his Venom Hot Sauce. Without a doubt, get some. Get some. Love it. But we will see you all Monday, and then you will hear from us again next week. Thanks for listening. See you all later. Have a good evening. Good morning. Good day. Good night, Moon. Good night, Moon.